podcast is brought to you by When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool. This is a robbery. Need you cool. Are you cool? I'm cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard. You know that? And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. You're the shot to this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn cool. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. Starting to see pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to your final monthly worship service of season one. Each month, we have helped to rejuvenate your soul through the good works of our Lord and Savior, Quentin Tarantino. I am the Reverend Scott K, and this is the Church of Tarantino podcast. Well, we've reached December, and that means we've reached the end of our chronological journey through Tarantino's filmography. And what better way to kick off the Christmas season than with a fairy tale as grand as the one about a virgin giving birth? Of course, I'm talking about QT's magnum opus, Love Letter to Hollywood, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But before we order us some fried sauerkraut and cry in front of the Mexicans, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the podcast the great... Mr. Craig Cohen, host of such podcasts as Conversations from Jackrabbit Slims, The Slycast, and Big Screen Book Club. Welcome back, Mr. Cohen, and may Tarantino be with you always. And you as well. And Scott, thank you so much uh, for having me back. And I got to say, most of all, anytime I get an excuse to rewatch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> it's a good excuse. So uh, knowing I was going to sit down with you for this movie, it was great to be like, oh, I have to watch this instead of being like, oh, I feel like watching this. <laughs> Well, it's an honor to have you back, and we were talking before, but I don't know how many people remember if I did a good job of describing it, but this podcast really doesn't happen without a couple of people, one being Petros Petsilovis, as I call the podfather, who told me to listen to your podcast once I told him I was moving into the Tarantino world. So I listened to your conversations at Jackrabbit Slim's ad nauseum, straight through, all 13 episodes, and then I went and stole guests from you. I got you on the show, which was, I never thought would happen. I got Mr. Ryan Rebelkin, and I got Mr. Pat Fournier, and I have built great friendships with all of you, and it has been a pure joy to be able to connect with someone who, you know, when I wasn't sure how I wanted my podcast to go, I just kind of listened to how you were doing things, and I kind of just was like, yeah, he's got a great way of just talking about it. You don't have to go through it and review everything. You can just find good points. You could spend days picking apart 
every single one of Tarantino's films and never truly do it the right service. I could say scene by scene from every movie, and I don't know that we would actually squeeze all of the juice that's in there out of it. So, But to have you on my show as the last official guest of the uh, main episodes, and Pat is my last official guest for the Bible studies. Oh, sweet. It's, it's synergetic to bring bring to close the people who uh, brought me into this world and now, which is strange to say, a year later now I'm sending yeah. it on its way and then getting ready for season two. But how have you been in your world? And I don't want to break any news, but there may or may not be an extra addition to uh, the old podcast conversations at Jack Rev Slims. Yeah, yeah. And, and first of all, I want to say that um, one of the main reasons that I've podcasted as long as I've podcasted for is for the relationships that I've built. And I've got friends... I can say all over the world at this point, who I've met through podcasting and who who I've developed friendships with. That's really what makes podcasting worthwhile for me is, you know, those connections that you make and those conversations that you're able to have and and getting to conversations at Jackrabbit Slims. There were a couple of guests, you included, who were uh, guests I wanted to uh, fit in and, you know, not really being tied into any kind of release schedule with it anymore. It was a monthly show. And then, you know, life got kind of busy. I figured towards the end of the year, maybe I'd try and just do like a final three to four episodes where I get those people on that I, that I still want to talk to and maybe find a way to, you know, give that podcast a little bit of a, I don't know if closure is the right word, but, you know, put a, an, a at least a nice little bow on it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm extremely proud of the work I did there. That was a concept that I'd had for, I think, about three years before I actually executed it. And that was purely because of the pandemic and the fact that I had a lot of time on my hands. But uh, that show turned out better than I expected. I had some tremendous guests. And there are episodes that I've gone back and I've listened to again. And the other cool thing about that is it's actually... Um, you know, it changed my perspective on a couple of scenes in that movie. <laughs> and aside from that, I'm, you know, I'm also been working on, on music since the pandemic as well. I got back into music and it was pretty fun around Halloween. I uh, decided to challenge myself and I put out a, a quick little three song EP instrumental uh, where I just took one synth, uh, a whole bunch of drum machine samples I had and uh, gave myself seven days to see what I could come up with. Oh, wow. So uh, I have a Bandcamp page and if anybody's interested in listening to my synth-based EP that I put out uh, around Halloween, by all means, uh, I'm sure, Scott, you can share the link in the show notes. Absolutely. But a uh, cool note for anybody who's listening, uh, the synth was the Elka, which was actually the synth that John Carpenter used on a lot of his early scores to give you an idea of, of what that may, that may sound like. I was just about to say, you sounded like you were doing, you were tapping into some John Carpenter, <laughs> then you bring up the synth he used, and I was like, well, no, he absolutely adapted to some John Carpenter. Yeah, it's funny. My dad texted me after he listened to it. It, and he said it was like Emerson Lake and Palmer meets John Carpenter. And I and I told him, I said, well, it's funny you said that, Dad, because that's Carpenter's synth. And my dad was like <laughs> really proud of himself for, for picking that up. I want to say something kind of controversial right out of the gate. Let's though, do it. Let's do this. Is, we're a church. What? That's, what, what? I opened much, up with the virgin birth. So let's yeah. do it. As much as I love sitting down to watch a new Tarantino movie, I can tell you, Scott, that I think I would feel complete as a Tarantino fan if this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, was the last movie he made. That is fair. Do we think that's because he has put so much onus on the fact that he's only going to do one more? And maybe as fans, you go, well, how can you... I mean, I've always thought, how can you top the, the last movie you've done, right? I've always been feeling like, you know, oh, you did Inglorious. What can you do next? You go, oh, all right, there's Django, you know? Like, yeah. how do you top it? And then... It's that weird, like, I too am worried about what it's going to be, which I shouldn't be. He's never, ever stated yeah. me wrong. And I'm sure that whatever he decides, 
will still be better than most of the shit that comes out. But, I mean, he was able to go past Pulp Fiction. Who would have thought he could have done more with, than Pulp Fiction? Or than Kill Bill? You know what I mean? Like, he has found a way to surprise us. But, yes, it does feel like he found a middle-aged Pulp Fiction with Once Upon a Time, if that's fair. Because it's like the three storylines that kind of are interwoven and it has a lot of... It's like a Pulp Fiction adjacent minus the crime story, really. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a hangout movie, kind of. And we feel for these three characters that we're walking through. Yeah, I kind of... I call it like a cinematic co- cousin to Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's just... The movie is so well done and the the ending of it and the final shot... If that's Tarantino saying goodbye to film, it completely works for me. And it's interesting. I mean, I know the film landscape has changed a lot Mm -hmm. um, since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was was financed and released. And Tarantino's gotten involved in other things, too. He's got the Video Archives podcast, which is excellent. um, And he's got his books, um, you know, the novelization of Once Upon a Time. And then also this new one, Cinema Speculation. So it's weird. I mean, I know he's taken long gaps between films before and i'm not as obsessive about tracking that kind of stuff anymore but i haven't even heard him like mention what he's potentially doing for that 10th film i know and as you say this well by the time that our listeners listen to this this will come at the beginning of december i will return about two weeks prior as we recorded i am three days away from seeing the man talk about his speculation and another guest sean wheeler has already seen him, and so far, there's been nothing spoken by him about what his next film, or even if there is a thought of what his next film is. So I still feel we're a good three years, if not four, possibly. This could be the longest stretch we have, because obviously Jackie Brown to Kill Bill is six years. That's the longest we went. And after that, it's been usually three years. It's been about a three, three three-and-a-half-year gap between each film, and we are already past that. We've already surpassed the three-year gap in July. It was three years, Mm -hmm. and we've heard nothing. So probably three to four years away. Before we get anything, so what's that? Twenty twenty, anywhere from twenty twenty five to twenty twenty six before we see it. Yeah, and and he actually can give himself an out because I know he's he's considered the Kill Bill movies both one movie. But yep. until he releases the whole bloody affair for us to own, I know I'm going to say there are two separate films, and that technically gets him to that magic number does of give ten. Him 10. Yes, but it uh, does. I, I really wish that. I don't know if it's legal issues that have prevented the whole bloody affair from coming out. Thankfully, I actually had a chance to see that in Philadelphia a couple years ago. It was actually there's a a group of guys in in the Pennsylvania area named Exhumed Films, and they actually have some kind of relationship with Quentin because they've borrowed his prints before for some of their movie marathons they do, and they actually were able to get a print of the whole bloody affair that they showed one uh, one afternoon in in Philly, and um, it's cool. It's a cool movie, and and uh, again, I don't know if it's just license issues or nobody thinks there's money to be made from it. I I don't know. It's uh, the world is so weird right now, yeah. man. Like with um, physical media being released, and I do think, like I said, I think Tarantino does have an out there if he wants to. He can say, True. "Well, I made ten films." <laughs> <laughs> However, he has come on set. It's only one film so then he would have to backtrack what he's already said yeah but you know what again on my shelf i've got kill bill one and kill bill two so do i you know and i will also this coming season there will only be two special anniversaries because there'll be true romance and kill the flying one and then the following year i will do a kill the flying two because it was released differently so i i'm still gonna pony up on it as well (laughs) however it is surprising that that hasn't come out as anything because when he did the expanded cut of and like a miniseries version of the hateful eight he kind of put the road 
Roadshow out there. Yeah, yeah. And and they're talking about the expanded version of, of Once Upon a Time that we were about yeah. to talk about. And so there makes no sense why he hasn't. But again, anyone's a QT fan as long as we've been knows that he has announced or said things are going to happen. Yeah. And you sit around and they never happen. Yeah. And that's it, kind it, of the I don't know if it's I don't know if he does it intentional or if it's just kind of the mystique of you just never know what you're going to get because who would have thought that all of a sudden a couple years ago the Hateful Eight would come out in an expanded you know miniseries version. You're yeah. Like, Holy shit! Like that just came out of nowhere, you know. So yeah, you just never know with him what you're going to get, when you're going to get it, and what is real, what isn't real. Yeah, I also wonder if he's starting to think about like his post filmmaking career, and then you know, uh, you know how a lot of times musicians will put out anniversary or extended or expanded versions of their albums after they've stopped, you know, actively releasing music, and maybe Tarantino's just thinking, you know, like, hey, let me future proof. My my retirement, and you know, I can hold on to that stuff and put it out after I um after I retire. Tarantino has been really surprising these last couple of years because there was a point where, aside from the press he would do for movies, he was a pretty private dude, you know. Yeah. And prior to the Video Archives podcast, he popped up on a whole bunch of podcasts. He sat down for an extended chat with Bill Maher on Bill Maher's yeah, podcast good. or whatever, where they they get stoned and drink. I'm sorry, somebody it's had right. the audacity to walk by the house. You you got to train them like Brandy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they don't move. But yeah, it's been kind of wild to see him come out and, you know, do his own podcast, you know, the Video Archives podcast with Roger Avery and seeing Roger and Quentin reconnect and work through whatever issues they had. Because it's funny, I know there's an episode of Conversations at Jackrabbit Slims where I kind of talk about the tension between those two and it it was patched up. And I really, really enjoy listening to the Video Archives podcast because those dudes, it's super fun to listen to them talk about movies. So it's just wild to see, you know, Tarantino kind of open up and put himself out there more because you know as older fans we know how hard it was to get that kind of insight from quentin unless he was out promoting a movie exactly yeah uh, yeah he was very very quiet about his life but you know as you get older yeah. but also in fairness i mean he it wasn't the advent of the internet when he you know started his popularity so but we didn't have the social media barrage that, he, that we have now and he stayed off social media yeah, yeah you know so that's a lot of people ask me oh you know you think tarantino ever caught your mm-hmm. podcast i'm like the only way he finds his podcast is out of pure luck mm-hmm. there's no way to get a hold of him you know so yeah it's never crossed yeah. my mind that tarantino will actually be on this podcast mm-hmm. that's never been something I even I don't even put myself in the mindset to think about that yeah. I'll never be disappointed so I yeah. don't ever think of it well you are in a very admirable position as as I was still in the early infancy stages of this podcast when I had you on you did my two Bible studies for Pulp Fiction who better mm-hmm. than the person who talks about Pulp Fiction on a podcast and I gave you your guest questions spread out over those two episodes yeah so only one other person has been on more than once or had the opportunity to be on more than once and actually be by themselves because Mr. Ian Harry was on twice, but he brought his partner, that is his podcasting partner, not his life partner, mm-hmm. on in Inglorious Bastards. So I asked Graham his question. So only Steve. Steve Smith is the only other person who's had the opportunity. Oh, and I think Ryan Rebelkin because they both on Kill Bill. So you will be the third person mm. to get the extra questions. And mm-hmm. we will start with this one. And I just sent the to you this morning realizing yeah. <laughs> he needs the newer questions as he's been, this is his second time. <laughs> so, dropping the ball, folks. Way to go. All of them to the end and still can't get the shit right. <laughs> what do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase? <laughs> um, a plot device. 
<laughs> well said, sir. Well said. Like a person who may or not have done a podcast based on this whole movie. Um, I think I think the thing about the briefcase, and if we really want to look at look at it like symbolically, I think the contents of that briefcase represent whatever the most desirable thing to whoever is looking into that briefcase wants it to be. So I'm not getting into a supernatural thing here or anything, but like, I think it's just kind of that, that thing. It's whatever the most important thing to the person viewing it is. And it's funny, I've never really gotten too hung up on what's in that briefcase. Like I said, it's just a plot device. It's a way to get those two guys in that room at the beginning and sort of put a lot of other events in that movie into motion. Agreed. Whatever your belief is, I'm all on board with it. And there's nothing you're going to come up with or that Tarantino could say that's going to make it better than what you have in your mind. So it is a plot device. It's you put in that briefcase whatever you want to be in that briefcase. And he's totally fine with it because if it helps move the story along, then so be it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So uh-huh. so I've heard a lot of different opinions and this and that, but I like your answer because it's where I fall. I don't think it's something of value. I don't think it's anything supernatural, but in the same mm. respect, what a value could yeah. be any it could be almost mm-hmm. anything. So yeah. I, uh-huh. I like the answer. I think we're both in the same camp cool. there. Staying up all fiction. What do you think was Jules' fate after the movie Pulp Fiction? Once once he gets done taking a piss at the bar <laughs> and they've turned over the briefcase, what happens to Mr. Jules Winfield? I think he does ultimately walk the earth, kind of like Kane and Kung Fu. But I do think that ultimately he plants himself somewhere and... I won't say plants roots or anything, but establishes himself somewhere and, you know, be kind of becomes that mysterious stranger in town. So more like David or Bruce Banner than came from Kung Fu. I think I understand yeah. why Tarantino went with it, but I think yeah, if, yeah. If, if Jules is having that change of heart, he's more Bruce Banner and he or, goes to town to town to help out until his Hulk pops out and he's got to be forced to move yeah. on to the next town to yeah. help out. So kind of like uh, Bruce Banner meets Michael Landon in uh, Highway to Heaven. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Instead of being an angel turning into something green, he just kills motherfuckers while yeah. saying a Bible verse. <laughs> uh, he is the shepherd now. He becomes a shepherd. Mm-hmm. Do you feel Vernita Green's daughter, Nikki, gets revenge on the bride? And I know there's a lot of people out there speculating that maybe Kill Bill Volume 3. I don't think that'll be what we get. I think that ship sailed. That's like we talked about earlier. It was one of those things he promised. Ten years after he finished Kill Bill, he said in ten years he would revisit the story with the Volume 3 slash 4 whatever. And never it never came to fruition. Perfectly fine. But since I don't think we're going to get that, even though my friend Sin Electric made an entire album hoping to <laughs> steer him in that direction. Fantastic yeah. album at that as well. I don't think we're going to get it. But again, like with Tarantino, you just never fucking know what he's going to do. But what do you think happens if we don't get this movie to find out? Does Nikki ever meet up with the bride and get revenge? And does that continue the circle of revenge gets revenge gets revenge? I actually think she gets revenge in a different kind of way. I almost see her journey being a journey of finding out who her mother is and why her mother met the fate that she did. And if she does meet up with the bride, it's more of a conversation of forgiveness and saying i understand why you did what you did and i forgive you wow that'd be a twist i like that that's what i'd like to see i i I think i think tarantino's too smart of a filmmaker to just do another you know rinse and repeat revenge yarn and again i i I just i i really like the concept of you know exploring somebody you think you know and then learning that they're not that person at all so that's kind of where where i Think when I think about you know uh, Nikki when she's all, all grown up, that's what I think about. Wow, 
Here, some of us have been spinning this tale of <laughs> revenge and death, and you're more like, hey, you're more Jesus. It's Christmas season. You're more <laughs> turn the other cheek and go about your merry way. I like it. Yeah. Now, <laughs> someone who's not <laughs> not as uh, nice as maybe Nikki could be, Mr. Aldo Rain. What does he do after World War II? Does he be turned into Cliff Booth and become a stuntman <laughs> and just right. takes the name Cliff Booth? Yeah. You know what? I haven't really thought too much about Aldo. I, I just figure that he goes back to Tennessee and slow sips on some whiskey. Well, if you had listened to the birthday celebration, I have my own idea what Mr. Elder does. <laughs> I don't think he can sit home. I think he doesn't like Nazis it's so fervently... <laughs> Again, again, this is very self. This is a very self-realizing yeah. prophecy. But I, I like the fact of him going down to Argentina South America. and finding oh, yeah. those Nazi bastards and, yeah, and raising yeah. some hell down there. But yeah. again. It's all a nice fantasy. No, there's a lot of material to be mined from that whole idea that, you know, there was a whole second or what, third or what do they call it? The fourth or fifth Reich yeah. down in South America. And uh, there's been some interesting, there was, I think it was on History Channel, there was a whole special where they, they tried to kind of prove, you know, that that's what happened. I would love to see that. That's a cool idea, Scott. If this is the last film, if we do get this as his last film, whatever film that may be, whose career would you like to see Tarantino give a boost to with it if it is, in fact, his last film? And this is, a once again, a question that Ryan Rebelkin, who I first learned of on your show, and I have since had the privilege of being on his show and having him on mine a couple of times, he is the one who actually gave me this question. Mm. And so now I've been using it, and I always try to give him credit every time I ask it. So who's the person you're giving the boost to? Uh, he kind of got a little bit of a, this is kind of Tarantino adjacent. But I would uh, love to see Michael Bean, you know, get a, yeah. a nice meaty role. I know he was in the Robert Rodriguez portion of, of of Grindhouse or Planet Terror, and he was in the great trailer for Thanksgiving as yeah. a detective. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's Michael Bean's career is always sort of I don't know if frustrate is the right word, but he seems like a guy that was just totally underutilized, especially if you look at, you know, I mean, the Terminator is what it is. But I mean, if you look at that performance, mm -hmm. there is so much depth to that performance and the pain in that performance mm -hmm. and knowing that he's gone back in time to his world before his world was decimated. I think it's just a, a great understated performance. And then also there's the just the wonderful Johnny Ringo performance in Tombstone. Yep. And Aliens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I he's an action guy, and I yep. think action people appreciate him, but I just... He's the Rick Dalton. I think we're talking about Rick Dalton right now. <laughs> yeah. I feel like Michael Bean is Rick Dalton at the moment. Yeah. Michael Bean is our Rick Dalton from the 80s, the guy who was this close to fame, yeah. but just never caught the star. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think Tarantino could write a great role for him, and I think he could deliver a, a, a great performance. So so uh, I think if, if anybody out there needs the boost, I think that would probably be my choice. Damn fine choice, sir. And I know my friend Sean Wheeler, we talked about it a little bit. I think he would agree with you that he would hope it would be Michael Bean as well. Here's some fucking facts. Jack. Now, my last chance to impart upon everyone the wisdom of this film, and it's the last chance I get to have this jingle play, which is the Fox Given jingle that my friends at the podcast Nobody Asked For came up with for me. So here it is one last time. Fuck. 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 Fuck.
fucks given. How many fucks were uttered in all variations in this film? And up until this film, for the last couple of films, the word fuck has been taken away by the N-word and other words. It's not as had its day in court like it had prior to, but it does make a powerful return here in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I gotta say, before I guess, it's got probably the best use of fuck ever, where uh, at the very end, uh, Dalton says, well, the fucking hippies aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I don't remember this being overtly F-heavy, but it's a long film. I'm going to say 35. Ooh, very short. Really? 120 Two uses of the word fuck. Could be motherfucker, fucking... Yes, it's in there quite a lot. Wow. But I think because it rolls so well in the pattern of their discussions, we don't notice it. It's Mm -hmm. not... We don't have aggressive male saying it during karate. It's like a conversation between you and me. We've probably said the word fuck at least 20 times, and we don't even realize (laughs) it because it's part of our daily pantameter. And I think that's why it feels so light in this film because it's not... You know, except for the moments like you said, well, the fucking hippies aren't... this mechanical ass, you know? Are you looking at your fucking ginger? Fu- you know what I mean? Like, except for the moments yeah. where it's explicit in front of us, it just becomes part of their, their discussion. So, I mean, that's still the per minute average is still pretty low based on oh, running God, yes. time. It, it does not even come close to what Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs did. No, not yeah. even, not even yeah. swings at it. Body count. How many bodies hit the floor in this? And it is tied for the lowest. Okay, well, let me do some counting here. And I will be honest, too. One was assumed or was alluded to and then was technically confirmed in the book. Okay, okay. So these are people that have to have stopped breathing. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Not not deaths yeah. as far as like on with the, the violence of the show. Real, like actual human beings who actually died, not through the culmination of the TV shows or movies yeah. that he's in. Four? That's a bingo. You are correct, sir. Right on the money. <laughs> okay. They yeah. would be the three Mansons at the end. Yeah. And Mr. Cliff Booth's wife, who yep. we'll get into. We'll yeah, talk yeah. a little bit about how that is handled in the film and in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Ooh, some bare feet sightings. Now, this may be the most bare feet we get in a film. How? And I had to count, and it's fucking a lot. Well, yeah, the, the Manson girls. How many bare feet do we see in the film? Now, for instance, if Pussycat comes on screen, she's in the car, we see her feet. It's not every time that her feet come back up and see it. Every scene that we cut from. So if they give one scene, she's walking down the road, we see her feet, that counts. If then she's in a car a couple scenes later, that counts. It's how many scenes with bare feet in them do we have? So how many people's feet are seen total in the movie? We see Sharon Tate's feet. Yep. God, is the Manson girls are really going to throw this number off because mm-hmm. I'm going to say 11. Oh, getting a little short. 29. Wow. Yes, there's even some at the pool party at uh, the Playboy Mansion. So Rick Dalton shows his feet at least twice. There are quite a few scenes of bare feet. Uh, when they go into the Spawn Ranch, all five people just in the house are all barefoot. Mm. So there's it is the most. But unlike some of the films, this again is just it's just character traits. This isn't any sexual connotations at all. Yeah. Like the people when they're barefoot, they're barefoot realistically. Like every time we see Sharon barefoot, well, when she takes off her shoes in the movie theater, it's the only time where it's like maybe egregious. But she's pregnant. She walks out of her house. She's at a pool. You know, it's mm-hmm. all very legitimate why she would be barefoot. Rick's barefoot yeah. twice in his pool. Yeah. It's not like what we do in death proof where we're using them as female attributes because we want you to be done to be sexualized so we know that we're in a slasher film kind of thing so yeah or to be used as like in Pulp Fiction as we've just learned that a woman's feet are the deadliest thing you could touch and you could die from (laughs) and how do we introduce her to the character who might get killed from it by her feet so next up 
the motherfucking Tarantino-verse. Now, this is the point where we connect the universe, the Tarantino-verse. I do not decipher between the regular, the movie. The Tarantino-verse for me is the Tarantino-verse. I, I don't try to do the meta, the different loops. I don't care about that. I don't have time for that shit. It's too much to do this anyways. We have three actual connections, and I have two sort of's. And the sort of's are always like they're like adjacent things that happen, so they don't technically connect in the sense of the movie, but they do connect mm-hmm. in the sense of, and you'll see in a second. Number one. Our first, Mr. Rick Dalton stars in an Italian spy movie called Operazione Dynamite, which was directed by the real-life Italian director Antonio Margaretti, mm. which was also Donnie Donowitz's alias in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, cool. Number two. Big Kahuna Burger makes an appearance as an ad on the side of a bus. As up until this point, it had not been seen since the 90s, which is wow. crazy to think. Yeah. And it also made appearances in Reservoir Dogs. Well, as I talked about in the thing, the cup. Mm-hmm. Cup for what it would become, it was there. We did. They had not created the logo yet, so it does get its first introduction ask there. Pulp Fiction from Dust of Dawn and Four Rooms. Four Rooms is the last film that this made its appearance until it makes it to Hollywood, which is wow. 20 some years later, 22 years later, something like that. Oh, that's awesome. You know right? what? I don't think I don't think I caught that. It's brief. It's one of those yeah. brief, like, oh, oh, there it is. Yeah. Number three. Kind of like what I'm about to say with red apple cigarettes, because it yeah. makes an appearance again. And at the end, but they're still smoking a couple, but then the, the great ad that Rick does in, mm-hmm. in the pre-credit sequences, much like it makes it in Pulp Fiction from Dusseldown, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, Inglorious Bastards, you catch it in the pocket of one of the soldiers. Django Unchained and The Hateful Eight all have Red Apple in it. But because of Rick Dalton's <laughs> not-so-positive campaign, no one would smoke it because it tastes like shit. <laughs> and he has a double chin in the, in the ad. Now our sort ofs. The cream-colored Cadillac that Mr. Brad Pitt drives belongs to the great Michael Madsen. This Cadillac he no longer owns. He has since sold post this film, but it also appeared in Reservoir Dogs. So that was the Cadillac that they pulled the cop out of in Reservoir Dogs. And this is a very far-fetched, but you know what? I'm going to put it out there because, fuck it, it's fun. There's a fan theory out there that Randy and Janet, our stunt coordinators on the set of The Green Hornet, might have been the parents of Stuntman Mike and Stuntman Bob. Don't forget, Mike has a brother, Bob. However, IMDb has their last names as Miller, and Stuntman Mike's last name is McKay. Just take that for what it's worth. It's a fan theory, but I thought I'd put it out there because it's always interesting just to hear. It's never been confirmed or denied by anything of Tarantino, which he never will because usually he likes to leave that shit for you to figure out. But there you go. (laughs) Our final dance in the Tarantino-verse. Oh, that's cool. Like I said, there's some stuff there I I hadn't picked up. And those were the facts, Jack. And now the gospel, according to the almighty Tarantino. Chapter 12, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let's jump right on in to the magnum opus and maybe last film, if (laughs) if it's up to Craig Cohen. Could be the last film, which would then make my whole point of what I want to do at the end of this podcast really fucking (laughs) just end on a real quick note. It's like a balloon letting all the air out and just (laughs) sag into the ground. But when this film was first announced, it was trumpeted as a Manson movie and that it would be centered around the horrible events of that night in August 9th of 1969. Now, when you heard this the first time, what was your initial reaction when we thought that Quentin Tarantino was actually going to do a movie about the Manson murders. It's kind of a two-part question. How surprised were you with what we ended up getting instead? It was disappointment, mainly because, again, it just seemed too on the nose for somebody of Tarantino's sort of caliber. It seemed like low-hanging fruit almost, and and it seemed kind of out of character for what he would normally do. The final result, absolute elation. I mean, uh, I've, I've mentioned it 
I think I mentioned it last time we talked and I mentioned it on my show, but like once upon a time in Hollywood really sort of heated me up on Tarantino again after cooling off for, for mm -hmm. a couple of years. So I was blown away with what he delivered. I really, um, I know that this is a polarizing film in the fandom, but for me, and you know, like I said, you know, it's kind of a spiritual cousin to once upon a time in Hollywood. For me, it completely resonated and, um, uh, you know, hit all the buttons that I think it was supposed to hit. Oh, it's interesting because uh, I know he's listening right now, even though we're recording. He's not listening, but his eyes, <laughs> right now when it's live, he's listening. Mr. Sean Wheeler said on, God, it was either one of the things we did together or it was my last episode for The Hateful Eight. He talked about how he's too cool, he's too artsy to watch the trailer. So he doesn't watch trailers for movies anymore because he's making his own, I don't know, fucking birch beer in the woods. <laughs> I don't know. He's very avant-garde apparently, but he doesn't watch trailers. And when he heard that this was a Manson movie, he was disappointed by the fact, because he's also a horror fan, that when he got home, it wasn't what he thought he'd been promised. However, over time, he enjoys the shit out of the movie for what it is. Mm -hmm. So there is that kind of like throw off. It leads me to this. Both of us and he, too, we're Gen Xers. So we didn't live in the time of the ninth, of 69. We do not live there. We were born years after. But mm -hmm. we grew up with background knowledge of the Tate murders by the Manson family. We knew who the fuck Charles Manson was. Mm -hmm. Up until, and this is interesting because some of my younger listeners will now know Jeffrey Dahmer. But up until Jeffrey Dahmer, the most notable person we knew as a circa, even though he wasn't a circa, which is the crazy thing. Yeah. He was just the cult leader who had people kill other people, was Charles Manson. He yeah. was the fucking boogeyman. When we all were going mm -hmm. up. He was yeah. that whole fuck. He was the craziest motherfucker. There was no one but him. He was the tip of that spear. Yeah. So we had knowledge going into this movie exactly what we were looking at. Now, how surprised have you been at the lack of that info by many filmgoers who want to see this? And do you think that lack of that knowledge affected this film's reception? You know what? That's a really an interesting question because I think it really sort of paints how you sort of absorb the ending of the film. I agree. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, like you said, you know, film girls of a certain age sat down and tragically knew where this story ends up. But thankfully, you know, we get the fairy tale version. And I think, uh, I think there's enough sort of breadcrumbs dropped throughout the movie. And since Tarantino had previously done it in Inglorious Bastards, you know, there was kind of that, you know, hope that we wouldn't get the ending that we got. But it's so hard to remove myself from the knowledge of what happened in reality of somebody going in completely blind, not knowing what happened on that terrible night. It's probably one of the hardest instances of being able to completely remove yourself from a certain knowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, and this was brought up, again, I'm just name dropping all the guests I've ever had. This is like, I'm going out in the big last episode <laughs> talking about everybody. No, but Sean and I kind of, he brought up that, and I'll talk about this as like the twofold for this, is the people who did not know, now know Sharon Tate through Margot Robbie, mm -hmm. and now have this more appreciation of what kind of a woman she was. Yeah. And, you know, So like, it leaves her on this like beautiful light of her, you know, in their minds, went on to have a, a baby or, you know what I mean? Like had this life in their minds that they obviously didn't know the true story mm -hmm. of. So they see Sharon on a whole nother level and it's a more peaceful and not horrific knowledge that we have because most of us don't know Sharon Tate from Adam except for this moment in time, you know? So yeah. there is that. So if you don't have the knowledge of this, you get this great 
entry of who this woman is into your life, and it remains a peaceful and joyful and loving memory of this ray of light of a person that you get to hold on to. However, on the flip side of Mm -hmm. that, I think that those same people were robbed of the tension, gut-wrenching anxiety that you go through for two and a half hours that we'll get into as we get to the end of the film because we know in the background what's coming. And no matter what Tarantino is showing us, for the first time through, everyone in the theater of our age and who knows the story is thinking, how the fuck is he ending this? Because we've all been told it's a Manson movie, so we're all like, okay, we're going to get this great story, but somehow we're ending on that night, and Manson, so a lot of us are like, is he going to go the whole way? Like, are we going to just hear bits of it? Like, how is he going to handle it? And there's that tension, and he slowly drips it in this film intentionally. You're missing it if you don't know mm-hmm. the backstory. So you get that two, four, you know what I mean? Like, so people like my, oh, my kids' age will sit yeah. there and watch and like, oh, it's a great movie, and they love it, but they have no idea the dread I felt the first time watching it, knowing like, how the fuck's he going to handle this? Knowing Tarantino and how he can sometimes go out with violence, we're going to handle it like we did with yeah. Boys Bastards. Or is it going to feel more real like some of the stuff we had in Django Unchained when you're like the D'Artagnan scene? You know, like you're sometimes put with a horror of violence in your yeah. face and you can't get away from it. I think that's the one thing those people like that missed out on was that experience of it was kind of a horror movie. It was a slow burn horror movie for some of us until we finally reached the end. Yeah. Well, and, and also, Scott, the whole trip to Spawn Ranch also yes. it can be viewed completely differently. It's a beautiful sequence because for people with the knowledge of what the, the fan what was capable of there's that little bit of dread for for cliff mm-hmm. as he's walking into this situation but then also knowing cliff especially after reading <laughs> the book you watch that sequence and realize that it's the family Actually, that should be terrified <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> you know yes if there's anything people you should definitely if you're listening you haven't read the book watch the movie one time then read the book and man it's like a it's a compendium like you go Oh, I've always said the movie is Rick Dalton's story. It's really told through Rick's eyes. We do get some of Cliff, but it's really Rick's story. Yeah. The book is Cliff's story. Oh, it's yes. Cliff. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. No, and the, uh, there's so many details in there. I mean, if if you loved Brandy and how could you not? Yes. Um, a lot. Th- there's the whole origin yep. story and of how her and Cliff ended up together. So yes. much detail, so much depth. I enjoyed yep. the heck out of that book. And uh, again, it, it's not a literal uh, adaptation of the of no. the movie. It's a, like you said, a companion piece. But it adds it adds a whole other layer to to the movie. Uh, and like you referenced earlier, the whole uh, in the movie, you know, it's referenced that he killed his wife. <laughs> the book yeah. does not make any of that yeah. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> suspect. Oh, well, that leads us to February 8th, 1969. It is a Saturday in California, and we open. Well, actually, prior to that, we get such a cool opening because it gives us a look at Rick Dalton on the set with Cliff Booth of the TV show Bounty Law. We get a little, which is great because even though they're from the 50s, there was still that kind of stuff when we were growing up in the 80s. There was still that because we still the oh, three yeah, main yeah. channels. Uh-huh. And there was those little behind the scenes, yeah. you know, so it reminded Entertainment me. Entertainment yeah, tonight. It reminded yeah. me of like our version of that. And obviously I'm watching my parents' version of what that was like. So how bad do you really want to see these Bounty Law episodes that he's written <laughs> be on Netflix? Like just, just a one-off, even though, look, it's just a fun TV show. Yeah. To see like yeah. Michael Madsen come back and play a character, like, because he gets to be the sheriff later on. Like, mm-hmm. how badly would you love to see this be the Netflix yeah. one-off? Which he has promised he wanted to do. No, it would be awesome. He's He referenced that, yeah. And I think the, the hardcover version of Once Upon a Time that came out after the paperback version, I think it's got a full script. It does. Of, uh, of Bounty Law. Yeah. I bought it, and it's sitting on my shelf. I haven't gotten to it yet. But it's funny. That book came out. The hardcover came out a year yeah. ago, last week, which was... 
but no, it's it's such a it's such a great way to open up the movie. You know, it, it instantly establishes their their relationship, you know, who they are to each other, and it showcases sort of where Rick came Absolutely. from. Great storytelling. Part of that great storytelling, and again, for my younger listeners, I, I apologize, this is gonna start sounding like you're parents reminiscing about the good old days but the addition of the khj djs the radio ads and obviously the music which is a character of this film as much as its impressive cast it reminded me because my father was in radio so this takes me back to the 70s and 80s when he was a radio dj when he was working in radio these commercials just there's so much of that that reminds me of the 80s when i was growing up and the 70s even though this is you know we're dealing with the 60s and I don't think it pulls people of our era into the film even more. You know, like this really is a love letter to obviously the time frame he came up in, but was still very prevalent in our growing up of, you know, before we have satellite radio and you've got all these opportunities for Apple and this and that. There's just something about those old radio ads. What were some of your favorite in this film? I can tell you my mind is Cliff's pulling up to drop off Rick on set for the Lancer pilot he's going to shoot or the episode he's going to shoot. And they're talking about the Hawaiian suntan. And it says that it's something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. It just it burns only a little like <laughs> like they're actually coming out and telling you that you're going to get burned putting this on, but at least you'll look like you're from Hawaii. Like, there's just something about yeah. the stupidity of how even back then the sixties people wanted to look like they were tan all the time. And here's this commercial selling you tanning lotion that only gives you like a mild burn. Like it only burns a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What was funny some of your favorite ads from that, that one? Absolutely. And then also the tag all the way at the end of the movie with the contest with Adam West and Burt <laughs> yeah. Ward. Is great. And there's actually, it's on archive.org, that radio station. They have put up dozens of air checks from the mid 60s to the mid 70s, including uh, Real Don Steele, Charlie Tuna. And it's like listening to yeah. the radio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So at work, I'll just open up archive.org, go to their page, and just pick a random date. And you get anywhere from 50 to uh, an hour and 15 minutes worth of that broadcast day, including commercials. Awesome. So if you dig that aspect of the movie, definitely search out that um, that page because it's great. Um, and you hear all of those, you know, you hear a lot of great adverts. There's just something about them. Like it really does turn a the clock back for people to just remember what it was like. And the DJs were so cool, you know, like just even the, the, the way they, they announced, the way they just run through their spots, their ads, they just had such a personality that it, I don't know how many DJs have that same personality anymore. You know, just, it, we've kind of lost that feel in local radio of what we used to have of these, you know, these guys like the Don Steels and, and whatnots that uh, used to dance across the airwaves many, many moons ago. It's, it's become a lost yeah. art form for sure. It's a lost art form. Now to name drop again, our mutual friend Matt Fournier and I, we are taking a deeper look at the meeting of Rick and Marvin in our first Bible study. So their Frank oh, and Musso cool. meeting, but we'll talk a little mm -hmm. bit about it. How great is Mr. Al Pacino in this small role as the Hollywood producer? And what Pat and I talk about, we just love some of his inflection. He's not doing the old, the old hoo or give me all you got. You know, he's not yeah. losing his mind, but it's just that he's like, I see, he sends his greetings from his wife, Martha Schwartz, and he goes up for no reason on the name. And then the, the Batman, pow, zoom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How great yeah, is Pacino yeah. in this small moment of a film? It's great because from the instant he walks in, everything that he does is in an effort to convince Rick to go yes. make Italian westerns. Um, and of course, Rick doesn't know that, but everything that he says and does is leading him to getting Rick to make that decision. <laughs> Talking about the double feature he watched, buttering mm -hmm. him up, and then ultimately bringing him down and giving him a sort of, Dose of class in the 
in the sad, sad reality of where his career is going. So it's great just to watch that you know that he went in there with that sort of strategy, you know, knowing how he had to approach it and probably having dealt with people like mm-hmm. Rick before and seeing where he had an opportunity to make money. It's a, it's a great scene. And it's interesting, you know, not to go back to the book, but it, in the book, he moved it to an office for yeah. some reason, and it just works so much better in the movie. Um, uh, Pacino's great in that scene. And like I said, it's great to watch that knowing that you know that he went in there with a specific <laughs> strategy of how to handle this Hollywood celebrity. Of the Dalton projects that they discuss, which of them would you love to come see to life? If we could actually see it, like, like if Tarantino somehow had fooled us and he filmed all of this stuff, we just don't know about it. I think he talks about Tanner. There's the 14th Fist of McCluskey. We talk about his show, obviously. And then there's the Hullabaloo episode. We get to see him sing it. Oh, which would yeah. you like to see to come to light of day? Yeah. Goodness. I think, I think the 14th Fist. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, we, we get some footage from that movie, but I would love to see the whole build up. I think that would be great. But also any, anytime you can sit back and watch a variety show, that's, <laughs> that's pretty entertaining as well. And DiCaprio does a really great job of playing that, of really yeah. playing to that 1950, you know, or 1960s sparse of a show where, you know, they bring on famous people and they're singing and he does a really great job in that moment of singing the green door. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he really uh-huh. leans into the accent he's playing with too, from where he's from. You know, he really leads uh-huh. the green door. He just really leans into it, you know? <laughs> Now, unfortunately for Rick, That's great. <laughs> this this meeting does not go the way he wants them to. And you and I have talked about it, and Pat and I talked about it months ago, and I said we would talk about it, and Pat and I really go into it on the Bible study. But I want to give you your opportunity. Don't cry in front of the Mexicans. <laughs> and who would have known that if it's such a catchphrase, that that would be one of those things that stuck. But as I said back then, Tarantino does not put anything in a film by chance or circumstance. There's always something that he is trying to convey, whether subvertly, covertly, whatever, Now, what is your impression of this line when you first saw it? And what is your interpretation of it now that you've seen it multiple times? Well, I think it's speaking to the idea that when you're a celebrity, especially in the 1960s, you're a celebrity 24-7. And you can't expose yourself to somebody who's visibly on a lower level in the class system than you are. It breaks that sort of facade and it, it breaks the illusion of Hollywood. So that's what I t- that's what I took it as on my first watch, and that's what I still take it as. I'd love to hear uh, you expound <laughs> on it because I'm sure it's going to open up my mind to uh, to ideas the next time I watch the movie. Well, you'll have to listen to it on the Bible side. I'm going to just leave it as that because I'm not going to let anyone hear it because Pat and I get into it. But right on. I, I do believe the first time I heard it, honestly— 100% full disclosure, I never thought anything of it. I just thought it was a really funny line, much like you're saying there. You just, you know, you don't cry in front of the people who are servicing you. You know, like the same thing, that class mm-hmm. system, because you're in Hollywood, you know. This isn't like where I live, you know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because I'm not in the upper line of anything. But it was when Pat and I were talking, after I finally met him, and we were on the phone, we were talking about it, and just we just came up with this, we were talking about this movie, and then it just kind of rained in my head because we thought about funny um, lines, and then just we kind of started riffing on it, and I started thinking like, there's more to this than, there's an inside joke. Well, not inside, but there's an inside knowledge here for why he said it. Mm-hmm. It's a very specific line to say. You know what I mean? Yeah. And as far as we know, Cliff in this movie is not racist by any stretch of the imagination. And he's not even mm-hmm. like, you know, he's not even as surly as Rick is because after this moment, you know, Rick calls all the hippies fucking hippies and he's flirting with yeah. him. You know what I mean? Like, so he doesn't hold the same aggressive yeah. feelings towards people as obviously Rick does. So I don't feel like, at least in the context of the time frame they're living in, that Cliff is of, I mean, maybe he holds some bigotry here and there. 
you know, I mean, that's the time frame they lived in, I'm sure he might have. But he doesn't wear it on his sleeve, and he's very, you know, yeah. he just seems to be very accepting of a lot of people. Maybe also his military background, because you serve with people from all over the place. So yeah. you are less to be yeah. insulated from other types of races and communities than you are if you aren't in the military. Right. Yeah, to find out more, you'll have to listen to next week's Bible study. Excellent. Now, throughout this film, Rick never, as I saying, refers to the hippies as just hippies. They are always fucking hippies, <laughs> at least, at least fucking hippies. I find it to be absolutely fucking hilarious once you realize that this is what he does all the time. But some have said that this is also a comment by Tarantino on older generations, to which he's now coming a part of, inability to let go of their glory days and accept that their days in the sun mm-hmm. have passed them by. Oh, absolutely. Kind of like what we've got going on without doing it too political, the MAGA revolution we've got going on, especially in America, mm-hmm. which I know can be uh, <laughs> divisive. But he kind of is explaining, showing like instead of your aging gracefully, like Rick, Rick can't age gracefully. He's literally throwing an adult temper tantrum because... Yep. Time is moving by. Now, the funny thing is he's not being replaced by hippies on TV. He's yeah. just being replaced by younger people. But he correlates younger people with hippies. So as far as he's concerned, yeah. he's being replaced by fucking hippies. So what did you think of this? And what do you think about that little insight that people think that it's kind of a, you know, age? I don't want to say classism, but almost like a generational class warfare going on right in front of us. But not so much just the subjects of the 60s, but even now where we, we live in. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, it's never not going to be timeless because people inherently get older and reach a point in their life where they're no longer quote unquote with it or hip. And it's how you respond to that, which is really, you know, what sort of defines that. And in the case of someone like Rick Dalton, who makes his living being hip and with it, to kind of find that you might not be (laughs) hip and with it with the kids anymore, it's got to affect you a certain way. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's it's never not going to be timeless. It's as guaranteed as death and taxes. Right. And it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about Tarantino now, like we are the Rick Daltons. We have reached (laughs) Rick Dalton age and. I just recently finished up and will be coming out. Actually, I apologize. Next week, technically, in release will be the Jackie Brown 25th anniversary. So we just recorded that. And when I watched Jackie Brown, and Ryan Rebelk and I talked about this when he was on that show, we watched it in our 20s. It was hard to associate mm-hmm. with the love story of two people in their middle age, in their 40s and 50s. And now that I'm in that age, yeah, yeah. I see Jackie Brown in a whole different light. And I'm sure mm-hmm. that certain listeners will see how Rick Dalton reacts to the hippies in a different light in 20 years when they're Rick Dalton. Like, it's a weird... Way to suddenly, you know, you grew up with Tarantino, you're in your early 20s, and now you've grown with him, and now you're getting close to your 50s, and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> fucking Rick Dalton now. Mm-hmm. I'm Jackie Brown, I'm Max Chair. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's a weird way to get there. Pretty soon I'll be fucking Marvin Schwartz. Greetings <laughs> yeah. my wife, yeah. Martha Schwartz. But I do like the fact that he's kind of maybe even giving the generation he's in, which because he's a couple, he's about a decade or so older than us. He'll be 60 next year in March. So he's getting to his 60s, and I'm getting closer to my 50s. So we're still a good, you know, he's the beginning of Gen X, we're the at the end of tail end of Gen X. And Mm -hmm. for me, one thing I took away from this film is to just go gracefully into my aging and not throw this fucking temper tantrum that a lot of adults, especially white males, you know, and some white females, we throw these temper tantrums because we're not important anymore. But that's life. Yeah. Like, we had our day in the sun. Yeah. And our day in the sun was 80s, 90s. Like, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't change our day oh, yeah. in the sun for anything. I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. And I always will. And now just enjoy this part of your life. Enjoy this mature part of your life. Kind of like Cliff. Be like Cliff. Put on some fucking moccasins. I was just say, you know what I mean? Wear a cool yeah. jean jacket. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even when Cliff loses, officially loses his job yes. with Rick uh, after he gets back from Italy, he doesn't throw a temper tantrum. He sort of just... Takes it in stride. It kind of just rolls off his shoulders, and he kind of just, he knows that that was the natural progression of where things were going to go. As violent as he is, there's a zen quality Hundred percent. He reminds me of a lot of people who aren't your normal, what you would think of military people. The kind of people who you did your service, and yes, there is a element of violence that is always in your DNA and could rear its head if called upon or necessary. However, for the majority of the time, if you've been in a place where you've had to experience that stuff, you tend to not want. You know what that goes to, and it's not fun. So you tend to not want to have to ever go that way. So you're just glad to not be there, and you just want to make your life go on and be as peaceful as possible. So. I totally understand where Cliff's coming from. I also understand where he can get to those points, but I also understand where Cliff is yeah. just kind of like, look, man, been there, done that, man. I'm just, he's just happy to hang out with, with Rick. You know what I mean? Like, he's got to yeah. that point of life. Like, I've been through a lot in my life. I'm kind of enjoying this part of my life. I'm just going to enjoy it, you know? I've done all the yeah. cool shit. It's time to just enjoy. Now, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this is a horror film that's on a slow burn. Well, we're being tricked into it being a horror film. I'll say that because if you mm-hmm. first time you see it and you have the information we have, it's a slow burn. And QT sets it up early. He's got the Manson murders looming over us the entire picture. When they finally are driving home, we see Celia Street sign. If you have information, you know where they are. There's the foreboding commercial playing as they're pulling up. About I think it's like one of the, the a new dark movie that's coming out. You know, like this violent movie. That's the music we've got as we're pulling up. And then a few seconds behind us, Polanski and Tate pull into their fucking driveway and they go up. He is setting up for those of you in the know about the murders. Don't forget. This is always hanging over us. It's almost like Mm -hmm. it's going to end. I feel bad for my younger listeners who didn't know what this was going in. You don't have that extra. You'll never watch this this movie Mm -hmm. with the same foreboding we did the first time. Now, now that I know the movie plays out, I don't have that anymore. But now I can appreciate and see it every time I see. There it was. That's why I felt that way first time in the Mm -hmm. theater. I saw that. I was like, because I just got sucked into the story. Just you know, twenty seconds earlier, and now he's like, don't forget. They're gonna yeah. die. He could have just yeah. come on the thing and gone. It, They're yeah. all gonna die. But 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 again, that's sort of like what makes a good movie rewatchable. And I've always sort of said, you know, in the case of like spoilers, of course I'm not a fan of people getting spoiled on a movie. But you know what? I can sit down and watch Psycho and be just as engaged and enjoy that movie just as much as the first time I watched it, knowing the ending of Psycho, knowing the ending of Citizen Kane, knowing in the end of this movie, it goes from the foreboding feeling you felt to anticipation. It's just a different viewing experience. But I mean, if a movie completely hinges itself on surprising you, and that's all it has, it's not a good movie. Agreed. Even like, look at a movie like The Sixth Sense. That movie was sort of marketed on its twist ending. You can go back and watch that movie. And I wasn't intelligent enough to pick up on the twist. Um, It's funny, after my brother saw that movie, I was like, oh, what'd you think of the twist? And he knew, he's like, oh, I figured it out within 20 minutes, The Sixth Sense. But what I'm saying is you can go back and watch The Sixth Sense and appreciate the breadcrumbs that M. Night leaves for you. Same in The Usual Suspects. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, again, I'm not a fan of people getting ruined on movies, but at the same time, if a movie completely falls apart because it's got a twist and it it didn't work to begin with. And this also, it gets back to what we talked about earlier about the twist of this movie is 
that it didn't give us what we were yes expecting. Uh, yes exactly. it's like a double fuck yeah. you know what i mean like it's weird because it's it's almost like you almost say wow you know if we didn't have inglorious bastards it probably would have been more shocking because inglorious bastards set us up for the idea that tarantino is fine playing in alternate yeah. universes if you will or the <laughs> tarantino <laughs> multiverse or whatever so i'm sure for a lot of viewers even if they weren't completely aware of it it was probably in the back of their head that tarantino could deviate from history and and I'm, I'm i'm not sure when you planned on talking about this but i'd say that a great breadcrumb uh is the bruce lee oh, it's coming soon yes yeah, well yeah, some yeah, of the breadcrumbs yeah. we're going to talk about right now too is we get this cool music fueled drive home sequence from cliff you know and we get to see just how on hollywood his life truly is he's not yeah. living in the, in the hills he's living behind a cool looking drive-in theater in van yeah, nuys yeah. and uh -huh. he's in this shitty little i mean he literally it may be bud's trailer that eventually gets moved like yeah he's like living in bud's trailer right. just 30 years yeah, earlier yeah. and we get to meet fucking brandy mm -hmm. now as you alluded to earlier there's not much we can talk about her in this except that it sets up the whole sit stay command thing that will come up mm -hmm. later at the end of the film yeah you don't realize yeah it. they've put in the work they put in the work but the book when you get a chance to read the book it's rare the what he does in the book what i loved about the fact that whether he wrote the book first or whatever, however he did doing it the fact that he released the movie then the book it worked i think it should be that way all the time i've always been a person who yeah, says yeah. do you know there's a film about a book watch the film first it'll give you the voice of the character and then when you read the book the book will only enhance what you've watched it'll never be the same you can't read Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, which are like 700 pages, and then expect in two and a half to three hours they're going to be able to cover 700 pages. It's impossible. Things have to be cut and left out. So you're going to be disappointed. However, the first time I did that was One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. I saw the film first, fell in love with it, went back, read the book. The book's even better than the film, but the reason I say that is because I now had the voice of McMurphy in my head. I knew it was Jack Nicholson. I absolutely loved every moment I was reading of it. It made the movie better as opposed to the reverse. So, yeah. this is what this book does. Uh -huh. is this book makes the movie better because now you get a backstory on Brandy. You get a backstory, like you said, on how they met, how Cliff becomes her owner, what she was trained. I don't want to give anything away, but Brandy is a bad motherfucker. She, when mm -hmm. she passed, what ended up happening was, is they used her skin to make the bad motherfucker wallet. That was just the way it went. <laughs> that wallet that Jules has is made from the dead dog that was Brandy out of her hide because of how bad of a motherfucker she was. That is the only proper fitting end for that amazing dog is that she should be made into an amazing one that gets passed on from bad motherfucker to bad motherfucker throughout time. But mm -hmm. if you get a chance, oh, the book just does such a beautiful job of giving us more backstory, especially of this dog. And she comes yep. from some traumatic events too and mm -hmm. like as much as in the book cliff saves her she may save cliff you know it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a dual Absolutely. saving in my in my opinion yeah as much as cliff could be saved well he was heading down some dark some dark avenues at that point because you know without getting yeah. too much in the book what she ends up being trained to do he's kind of on board for a while and then suddenly there's that moment where he's like no when he realizes yeah. like he's actually akin to the dog, he actually likes this dog. Yeah, yeah, she deserves more than than what she has. Yep, and yeah. then he does a one eighty in his life, and this dog is what helps him get to that point. I just, I just love mm -hmm. that. Just in that few minutes that they're there in the trailer, you learn everything about her. If you didn't know yeah, coming yeah. at the end that she was going to be that badass, even without reading the book, it was told to us in those breadcrumbs in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Now to kind of give you a little bit of insight of what I talk about for my version of the Don't Cry for the Mexicans, there is a bit of right before we jump to the the main meat of the story, which is February 9th. 
29th, which was we spent most of the film in, which is six months to the day before the murders. Spanish, Spanish, Spanish is how I've titled it. The film shines a light on the whitewashing of Hispanics in Hollywood. It starts mm. with even, so when Rick is doing his line reading, one, there's a character named Johnny Madrid, played by a white actor. Rick, in his little thing, he does Spanish, when he doesn't know the Spanish, doesn't even care about it, just does, he says some Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. And then when the actual Spanish actor, he reads his lines for him, you know, t- to pretend that the actor, he does it in the very stereotypical Mexican character reading his lines. There's a lot being said in Tarantino films, as I said throughout this year, first season of the podcast. If you don't know where Tarantino's heart and mind lies, watch his films. He has left you <laughs> a fucking yellow brick road to the Wizard of Oz of clues to how he feels about things and his stuff. He just lets his characters mm-hmm. do the speaking right, for him. Right. And it's a very pivotal scene at that moment. It's just a setting up for Rick and this great scene that we're about to get into. But there's so much that Tarantino is saying about old Hollywood and current Hollywood that uh, mm-hmm. he just says, lets his characters do. And if you catch it, you catch it. And if you don't, well, that's on you. February 9th, 1969, six months to the day that Sharon Tate and her friends were murdered by members of the Manson family. So we start six months in advance, and we start with something rare in Quentin Tarantino films in this section, and that is the ability to ad-lib in his movies. He usually is very tight to his script, mm-hmm. but you're fucking Rick Dalton, and don't you forget it. Ad-libbed <laughs> by Brad Pitt. Yeah. Genius line. Yeah. But it shows that Tarantino has matured in his ability and trust in his stars. He got two of the greatest actors of our time to work in the film mm-hmm. together. Not since Robert Redford and Paul Newman, when they both joined together to do Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, has there been two mm-hmm. stars like this. And maybe even earlier, not since we got to see Pacino and De Niro in Heat in a scene together. Now, they were in the movie together, but they really yeah. just shared that really main scene that everyone got crazy about. Have we had yeah. this kind of like, holy fuck, these guys are in the same movie together on screen. So the fact that he mm-hmm. was able to allow them to just be them in this middle section yeah. they gave some amazing ad-lib and performances that totally totally add to the film your thoughts oh yeah absolutely you know you don't hire you know brad pitt if you're gonna handcuff him and i mean yeah it's great that you know tarantino you know showed growth and became a more open collaborator especially when it came to his scripts but i mean as much as we may not think it i mean film is probably one of the most collaborative mediums there is because there's so many people working on it and everybody involved in some way impacts what that final film turns out to be um you know the director it's the director's vision but you know you'd be doing your, yourself a disservice to not take feedback from actors that have been doing it for yes. decades at this point big ups to tarantino for for being open to it yeah it's, it's just great to see and, and uh, again i mean it's great to watch an actor sort of develop too over the years and i mean i think brad pitt has always been very yes. very strong actor i mean you can go back Back to 12 monkeys even that little role in true romance (laughs) you know there's a lot of actors that wouldn't have been able to 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 play that role the way he did so uh it's great to see an actor's abilities just keep getting better and better and you know that confidence level in their abilities building up and then filmmakers that see that and let them sort of run with it. Not only does he get a good chance, but in a minute we'll talk about Leonardo's just full-on scene of just amazingness. Oh, uh-huh. Speaking of Leonardo and Rick, in case you missed it with the voiceover from the great Kurt Russell mm-hmm. and our introduction that you know we meet Rick, much like when we meet Mia Wallace with her feet, Rick's a fucking drunk. Rick's a fucking yeah. raging alcoholic. And mm-hmm. I 
love that when he meets Wanamaker in this scene and he shakes his hand, it looks like a pause, you know, for the wet hand. And Wanamaker just says to him, when it comes to you, I'm used to it. Just such a backhanded comment on his drinking problems. I just love that little like Wanamaker saying, yeah, no, I, I know you're drunk. Like, I know why your hands are wet. You're waking up from the bender from the night before. Like, I know you pretty well, Rick. Word makes its way around town. Just love that little moment. It's such like a, it seems like a throwaway line, but it's just like those little nuances that I love that Tarantino throws in his films with his characters that it's not just dialogue to move the story along. Like, it's dialogue to give you clues and hints that if you're paying attention to it, it builds character without having to go through a whole bunch of like backstory and bullshit. We learn that just from that one moment, if you're paying attention... Wanamaker saying, look, when it comes to you, Rick Dalton, we all know you're drunk. I know why your hands are wet. Yeah. <laughs> you've, you've been p- putting your face in an ice bath to wake up since you came on set. Like, I know why your hands are wet. I just love that little, nice little jab. It's like when your mom, you know, goes, says something to you. Or like, if your mom were to tell you about your, like, uh, your music, be like, oh, that sounds so professional. It's like, well, what the fuck is this supposed to sound like? You know what I mean? Like, it's meant as a nice comment, but yet it's just a little, like, Doo. Yeah, and, and Wanamaker was one of the many real-life people in this movie, and it's it's funny after watching this movie when i looked him up what i knew him from was the like mid 80s probably underseen schwarzenegger movie raw deal oh yeah he's like the main villain in raw deal and i was like oh my god it's the, it's the dude from raw <laughs> deal you know but you know going back and seeing that he had this you know he sort of made his bones as a director in tv that's the cool thing about this movie and then also you get like the playboy mansion yes. party where you get to see a lot of yes. real life people including steve mcqueen <laughs> yes which is wild that scene does a lot to establish where hollywood was in 1969 and how it changed from the events of the night we'll get Uh into but this scene also does a great job of showing us that this is rick having to come to grips with having to change who he is to stay relevant because he wants the highlights mm-hmm. he goes behind this junk and stuff. You know, with giving mm-hmm. him new hair and a different way he looks and a mustache. He doesn't want people to see him as Rick Dalton, the TV actor. They want to see him as Rick Dalton, an actual actor. He wants to see him as Caleb Decatu in this show yeah. and not his old character yeah. from his TV show. And this portion of the film is maybe my favorite because we get Rick's mm-hmm. moment on the pilot of Lancer, which it's unreal. Cliff's rooftop flashback and then his trip to Spawn Ranch. Mm-hmm. They're all fucking gems. What section of the film yeah. resonated the most with you? Because we get three. We get February 8th, which is the first day. We get February 9th, and then we get the last day, which is August 9th. Which of those three Mm -hmm. moments in the film or sections most hit you when you watch the film? I got to say that the final night for me is really, you know, it's the perfect ending of the movie. And it's funny that in the book, it's kind of just briefly mentioned in the middle of the book. But for me, it's the perfect climax. And I have to say, and this is probably bold of me to say, especially considering that I'm a Pulp (laughs) Fiction guy, but I think that that final sequence is the best directed sequence of Tarantino's entire filmography. I just think that everything clicked, every performance, every shot, the editing, that wonderful, wonderful vanilla fudge. (laughs) Yes. Keep me hanging on. But again, there's not a lull in this movie, so there's no wrong answer here. There's not normally a wrong answer when it comes to things, unless there is an obvious <laughs> wrong answer. <laughs> but but for this movie, I, I really don't think there is. I mean, it's the nature yeah. of the film. It's just a matter of what resonates with you the most. And again, watching that final sequence, it was just, I was proud of everybody involved. <laughs> just because, like I said, I really, really, truly think that it was a culmination of Tarantino's development as a director. And it's just such a wonderfully put together sequence. But that middle section, man, there's there's so much yeah. there. Again, there's there's no wrong answer. Now, many people I've talked to about this film, they they missed the flamethrower Easter egg when Cliff's in, <laughs> in Rick's shed about to fix the antenna. Did you 
see it your first time watching the film. Now, this is not one of those like, I'm better than you. I actually did see it the first time watching the film. And so I knew it was going to come back around. However, I had absolutely no fucking idea how or why. And after seeing it, yeah. when it does come back around at the end of the film, that's when I was like, oh, I knew it was th- there it is. By that time yeah. it came to the end, I'd yeah, forgotten about it. But I remembered, I was like, that's got to come back. We didn't just see the flamethrower for nothing. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I was. I mean, I am not great at picking up things on first watch. Like, first watch, for me, with most movies, it's always, like, super, super surface level. You know, I'm just, I'm just not tuned in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not wearing like my, you know, cinematic analysis hat. I'm just watching my dumb, you know, I'm eating popcorn, drinking soda. Just going you know, for the entertainment. Yeah, me too. Normally, but like I yeah, said, it just. Yeah, so. Of all, yeah. these, of all these Easter eggs, because it is such a big weapon, you know what I mean? Like, it's huge. It's fucking gigantic. The fact, you know, the fact yeah. that it shows up the first that time, I was like, it's got to be important again. Because, I mean, they're, they're not even trying to hide it. Like, it's not like it's sneaking out. Like, the only thing they could do is literally set it against that wall because of how fucking big it is. So I was just wondering if you'd caught mm-hmm. it that first time through, because a lot don't. No, not really. I mean, I'd like to say I, I, I had. I mean, my biggest question is, after he uses it, I'm like... Well, is there any kind of like maintenance schedule for a flamethrower? Like, how long can it sit idle in a garage for and still? And is there anything you can do about the heat? (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of a great Rick character moment as well. It kind of shows like a certain like kind of entitled actor mentality, if you will. You know, that's a great little moment that definitely creates character. Oh, man. And then fucking Brad Pitt fucking shimmies his ass up on top of the roof and has to take off his shirt to make all of us younger than him getting close to his age go, that son (laughs) of a bitch. Yeah, right. We get it. You're fucking still the sexiest man to ever walk the planet. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. I think this is also like one of the more misunderstood sequences in the film because I think a lot of people that were critical of this don't understand that this is Cliff reflecting on why he's on the roof fixing an antenna instead of working as a stuntman. That's the whole purpose of this sequence. And I think too many people got caught up on what they think it did to disparage the legacy of Bruce Lee. This is Cliff's version of why he's on the roof fixing an antenna. It's his flashback. It is not a documentary of what happened. We're seeing everything through Cliff's eyes. And again, this is another sequence in the book. That does a really good job of of helping to digest it. Yep, It does. And it it explains why Cliff is able to do what he does in that fight. But I didn't watch this movie coming away thinking, wow, Bruce Lee was a dick or anything like that. Again, it was Cliff saying, I'm up on this roof because of me. Yes. You know. But in the same respect, there has been a lot of reports that in the earlier days of the young Bruce Lee, he was a he was, you know, mm-hmm. he was a little bit of a motor mouth, a little bit of show off. I mean the man was well, I mean sure. the man was invincible I mean, almost. You, and yeah, of course. That's what yes. I mean. How could you have that ability and not, you know if you watch professional sports, a guy can go a whole three quarters in a football game, not do a damn thing, makes one catch for three yards and then gets up and dances like he just fucking is the greatest thing ever. And you're like, dude, you finally caught a fucking pass. So yeah. meanwhile, Bruce Lee, <laughs> who can pretty much disable anybody he wants, of course he's gonna, you know, beat his chest about that. And if you read the book, it does yeah. a great job. But I love the flashback to the Green Hornet set. One, we get the mm-hmm. amazing Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell again. Yeah. We also get the flashback of Cliff possibly killing his wife on a boat, which uh-huh. is 
unbelievably well covered in the book. And there yeah, is a yeah. part of me that I wish, I know why they didn't use it or even film it, but there is a part of me that wishes they did because it is another yeah. one of those Tarantino moments that one would have built us a little different respect for Cliff and how much him and his wife actually didn't have that bad of a relationship overall, but also ends mm-hmm. with a hilarious out of the fucking left field mm-hmm. ending that you just like, that is totally Tarantino. And when I read in the book, yeah. I laughed. I was like, holy shit. And it was great. Yeah, yeah. But we do get, as you said, the controversial fight scene between Quilliff and Bruce Lee. Once again, handled perfectly in the book. And I can just give a little instance. The first time you watch the film, folks, or every time you watch it, when Cliff says, stands there, and Cato comes at him, or Bruce Lee, and he calls him Cato in the thing, because that's his character name in The Green Hornet, and he kicks him. Watch how... Cliff does not move. He lets him kick him. And that talks about it in the book. Because of his training, Mm -hmm. he knows who Bruce Lee is. He's seeing what he's going to do. And he knows when he says, try that again. Because of the arrogance at the time of Bruce Lee's character, he's going to try it again. And that is why Cliff is able to grab him midair and throw his little Mm -hmm. ass into the car. Yeah, yeah. He he was able to analyze his fight style, analyze how to counter that. But it also gives Bruce... Bruce talks about it, too. So we get a backstory of Bruce. Because Bruce, we get to hear his thought process. And Bruce is pissed off that he allowed himself to get fucking duped yeah. into doing it again. Mm-hmm. And that's why when they mm-hmm. keep fighting, they don't, he doesn't do another running kick. They now just go to hand to hand. And obviously Cliff's yeah. going to be, yeah, no. Cliff has killed people. And Tarantino's come yeah, out and yeah. said this and he says it in the book. The reason he believes Cliff would beat Bruce Lee's character, a person like Cliff, is Cliff has had hand-to-hand combat training and fought mm-hmm. with it in war and killed people. Where Bruce has not, and yeah, Bruce yeah. is kind of saying this when he's talking about his inability to be able to do that with boxers like Cassius Clay and this and that. And the reason that Cliff yeah, finds yeah. it funny is because Cliff has had, has taken it a level above both of those guys and knows what it takes. And he just, you know, I don't believe it had any disrespect. And as Tarantino says, the only person no. he is fine with having a problem with it is Bruce Lee's daughter and everyone else can go fuck themselves. That's basically what he said. Yeah, yeah. But how do you feel about the yeah, controversy? Yeah. Do you think it's just fucking overblown? I'm a huge fan absolutely. of Bruce Lee. And I didn't once come out of there going, yeah. oh, fuck Bruce Lee. Not once did I even think that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Again, I think it's people missing the point of the perspective, first of all. We're getting things from Cliff's perspective. So everybody's memory of things is different. It could be amplified a little bit in Cliff's memory. And again, we're seeing Cliff sort of bemoaning the fact that his actions led to him not being able to get hired for a job. (laughs) I really think it was overblown. And I think it's funny. I think a lot of the controversies in sort of that happened in the Tarantino sort of world are always kind of overblown. Yes. You know, and not to get into a whole thing about it or even to, you know, attempt to justify language that he's used in his films. But I think all of that has been overblown. And it goes back to, you can probably trace that back, you know, decades. I mean, you can even look at how people responded to Goodfellas. Yes. And the language in Goodfellas. And, you know, I I don't know. I I think a lot of the reasons that a lot of things with Tarantino have a tendency to get overblown, it's because it's Tarantino. Yes. And he is a polarizing personality. 100%. He's never avoided being a polarizing personality. And you could almost argue that he's still around and still relevant. Because of that polarizing yes. personality. I mean, that's part of show business, you know? I mean, as mm-hmm. much as we like to say that, you know, art or movies are artistic statements, you can't be around as long as somebody like Tarantino if you're not doing the show business part of show business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I also don't think he does any of the stuff for Malicious, publicity. Yeah. You know, like he's yeah, not yeah. writing the N word in Django no. and Hateful Eight for publicity. A lot mm-hmm. of things he puts in, his movie, he feels are real. And I think one of the reasons, if you're a fan, you love his movies because he says the N word like that. But because everything that happens on screen, you feel is legitimate. You feel is real. Yeah. You feel like, uh-huh. oh my god, I know people talk like this. Whether whether exactly. it's a good or bad thing, I'm not saying that's a you know you should, you know you should know people who say the N word. But like when he has a person like a Drexel Spivey, even in True Romance, which is from his script, and he tells you. I know someone like Drexel Spivey. Yeah, yeah. I uh-huh. know this person. You know, like all these characters go, no, I've heard this. And he yeah. takes real life people and people experiences and he puts them into his films. So that's why I feel like a lot of people love his films is you always feel like they're authentic. I don't feel like I'm getting a caricature of somebody, even though I get Bruce Lee's daughter being upset. But the Mike Moe did a great job. You watch the documentary for ESPN about uh, Be Water. Mm-hmm. My God, he's got his speech pattern down and everything. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. he looked like, I mean, it was like we were looking at Bruce Lee in Terrence. Mm-hmm. Film. That's fucking Bruce yeah. Lee up there. No, and I think you hit on something good there, and and it's to the sort of authenticity of the dialogue. And you know, you pretty much said it, but you know, you'd almost lose respect for the characters if they weren't speaking in an authentic uh, voice. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. You absolutely would. And you know, there's plenty of movies out that you can find that in. But you know, it's also funny to me that you know people can utter in their, and this is all. I'm I'm not going to sort of you know try and say that my experience in life or I can, you know, line up with the experiences of other people. But for people that think that Tarantino's racist um, because of his, it amuses me to no end. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that he's been an advocate Mm -hmm. for so many actors Mm -hmm. of all different colors, Mm -hmm. those two things can't coexist. No, they don't coexist. (laughs) Because the person who says that sees them, him using his characters, using the N-word and says, well, he's got to be a racist. Well, one, we're talking about Antebellum South. So what do you think they're saying? Yeah. They were saying this word all the time. Yeah, Not yeah. only that, but every person of color or female character usually comes out mm-hmm. on top. Like, they're usually the smartest person yeah. in the film. Like, Django yeah. Chain is a, we talked about it, it's a superhero story. It is yeah. the origin story of a superhero, of a black superhero named Django Freeman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marquess Warren in The Hateful Eight gets his revenge on these, like, yes, there's horrible language being said, but that was the time. And the people yeah, who yeah. say that are still some kind of people who live in America who are like, we can't talk about slavery. Well, yeah, it didn't yeah. happen. Well, well, guess what? It <laughs> yeah, did yeah. fucking happen. Yeah. All right. And so yeah. Oh, yeah. I've always found that uh-huh. if you think that Tarantino's this way, you're not watching his movies. As I said, yeah. I'm not going to get in the politics of it, but he lets you know where he, where he stands. He yeah. lets you know where he stands. And sometimes in order for you to understand how horrible that word is, you got to hear it a lot and you got to hear it from people who have said it a lot and it's got to make you feel uncomfortable. Then you, as a white person, you only get this, you stretch the surface of what it must be like. If it's making you uncomfortable to hear it being said, imagine you being the person that it's being said to your entire life. Yeah. So if it's, yeah. you're uncomfortable in the theater hearing a person of your color say it imagine what it's like to be the person that's being said to and have that being said to you all the fucking time yeah there's actually also a really good section in cinema speculation uh where he talks about as a kid seeing black exploitation movies in predominantly black areas with black audiences and you can totally understand how that sort of shaped his worldview as a filmmaker well a lot of his uh, father figures his mother yeah. dated primarily uh-huh. black men yep uh-huh. when, so yeah. he never really talks about his father so we don't really know what mr tarantino is like or yeah. if there is a yeah, if the yeah. last name is tarantino i don't you know of all the books yeah. i've read of him he's very rarely talked about but he does talk a lot about the black gentleman who his mother dated over time 
which mm-hmm. obviously helps you notice, you know, the crossing of why he writes strong female characters, why he's written strong black characters, mm-hmm. why he's so influenced by black cinema, mm-hmm. and why so many black actors want to work with him. Yeah. He uh-huh. feels authentic. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to get into any of the other kind of things that can be said, but he's definitely a an ally. I do believe he truly is and will go above and beyond. Like, he has gone out of his way to tell stories that, and you know what? He's used his white privilege to do so. Django yeah, yeah. Unchained does not get made yeah. if it's not Tarantino. And yeah. I know that's terrible I mean, to say because it should be able yeah. to be made by like a Spike Lee, a yeah, Ryan Coogler, yeah. any number of yeah. great African-American directors. However, what we talk about Hollywood, that is just not the case right now and hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Which is why we have whitewashed Oscars all the fucking time. It's why yeah. Jackie, why Pam Green didn't win a fucking Oscar for Jackie yeah. Brown. But he is able to get some of these stories made that wouldn't normally get made. Yeah. And he's he's telling black stories. And I know that yeah. can rub people the wrong way because he's white. Yeah. But I mean, what what else do you want him to do? I mean, he's he's an ally. Like he's yeah, getting yeah. these stories well, made. He's, he's he's at least perpetuating the ability for black actors to work in Hollywood and makes it yeah. the forefront. I mean, you can even trace this back though to like Spielberg making the color purple. There were the same kind yes. of arguments being made. But the other thing is, uh, again, I said, you know, you can't have those ideas coexist that Tarantino does what he does in his film but is also a racist. But then you look, Sam Jackson, Jamie Foxx, Pam Greer, Rosario Dawson, these people would not work with him. No, Pam Greer um, would definitely and, not work with him. P- yeah. Pam Greer is the uh, toughest person he's ever worked with. Like, Pam Greer is no joke. Like, Pam Greer is, like, she is the character she's played. Like, she's brought yeah, yeah. so much of her own life into these characters and the shit she's had to go through. Pam Greer would definitely not fuck with Tarantino if if he if she felt in one second he was a racist piece of shit not for a mm-hmm. second and he would be done you know what I mean like like yeah. he would that would be it Pam Greer said that's it mm-hmm. for him back in the ni- yeah. in the nineties Sam Jackson's yeah. not working with him anymore like it's over with for him yeah and again I'm I'm not trying to you know claim I I understand how people that have different experiences than me might feel but I mean if you look at everything objectively and looking at the evidence like you're in court there's only one logical conclusion and I think a lot of times. Again, it all comes back to the fact that Tarantino is a polarizing dude. And if it helps somebody justify disliking Tarantino, it's just ammo that they can use, whether or not it's real or imagined. Goodness. What a <laughs> what a little what a little detour that was. Hey, that's what we do at the church. We wanna you know, I mean well it's 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 a controversy that's always talked about with him. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, when we talk, you know, you the controversy of uh, the the fight scene with Bruce Lee. So it just kind mm-hmm. of they mold yeah. meld into each other. He's not doing it for controversy's sake. It's really not his his bag. He is a storyteller mm-hmm. and if this is authentic for the story. He's going to tell it. That'll get us back on the track a little bit. But as I said earlier, he uses authenticity with Manson, and he makes an appearance after mm-hmm. we get back from this fight scene. So those of mm-hmm. us who have an idea, you go, ah, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. We see him for the first time. And mm-hmm. you go, there's that little fucking squirrely motherfucker. And yep. now you're like, fuck. First time you saw him, did your ass pucker a little bit? Because oh, yeah. you know that at some point, like, fuck, this whole thing's going tits up, and mm-hmm. this is the motherfucker's going to have it happen, and it's because of him visiting the house six months earlier, and he's there, and this is really well talked about again in the book, but for those who don't know, he was there to visit a music producer who also worked with the Beach Boys, and he, mm-hmm. he actually Melcher, had music. Yeah. yeah, and he was trying uh-huh. to get some music made, and he has this moment in his life where he gets tired of being kind of turned away. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. You think about the where life would be if someone had just produced some of his music, Sharon Tate's alive, Tarantino's not the filmmaker we know him as, like little ripples these are the real ripples in life that you don't realize but if mm-hmm. someone had just helped produce his album you don't have this whole big fucking thing that happens on August 9th 1969 yeah but because uh-huh. of that he decides to just go up there and fucking kill him and then you know it just goes bad but so you two felt that asshole puck mm-hmm. and the minute you show him you go oh shit 
But yeah, it's just yeah. interesting though, when you do see Cliff looking down at him, you go, history could have been different too if there was a Cliff boot. Because Cliff looks at him like, who's this squirrely little fucker? Like he definitely looks down and I'm like, who's this piece of shit swirling around? Yeah. Here? Yeah, yeah. Now, Margot Robbie, another maybe controversial part, I think she was brilliant in her portrayal of Sharon Tate. Mm -hmm. And the more I've watched it and the more I've heard interviews, I know why hers is so nuanced and why she didn't get a whole lot of lines. I think some of it is because we are telling a fairy tale. We, we want to mm -hmm. show her in the best light. We, he's trying to illustrate how, how much of a beautiful and light and free and caring person she was, but also giving us that, oh, shit. You know what I mean? That, that fear yeah. like, oh, someone's going to take this from us. Because we yeah. know at the end of the day, it, that's what really happens. Yeah. What is your impression of her performance and her lack of lines? This is this again. This is where people go. Well, he doesn't care about women. It's like, uh, what are you kidding me? He doesn't care about women because he doesn't give Sharon Tate a thousand lines. I don't buy into it. But again, I don't want to mansplain it and try to be like you know, because I'm the male saying, God forbid, a female thing in lines. But like we said, past body of work shows that's not the case. And I yeah. think he did that because he wanted her to be more of a mythical character and us to see her in this light as opposed to I don't know. What What is your take on that? Yeah. Yeah, and I also think it was probably a respect thing. You don't want to editorialize with somebody who died the way they did. And, I mean, you could make an argument that, well, he didn't have any problem doing that to Bruce Lee. But I, I really think there are two sides of a, of a coin. I think it's effective in the sense that we got to see who she was through just very few instances. The scene in the bookshop with uh, Gulliger, her whole experience watching The Wrecking oh, Crew. So great. You know, it, it, it sort of, those moments, you don't need dialogue for that. No, her picking up the hitchhiker on the way to the movie and her just being mm -hmm. so amazing. Yeah, no, so I think, I think that that role was completely effective. And I, I think a lot of times the lack of dialogue um, shouldn't be seen as like a, a bad thing. It, a lot of times it can amplify her performance. And if I recall correctly, Scott, I think in it might be in some of the bonus features that are on the Blu-ray. She spent a lot of time with Sharon's sister, yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. And her sister loved the performance. Absolutely thought mm -hmm. she she nailed it. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, I guess we can do the two sides of the coin with, you know, Bruce Lee and then her. But her sister cried. So I, it was like watching my sister. Like, my sister mm -hmm. had come alive for the first time in 50 years. I, I got mm -hmm. to see her again in real life through the embodiment that is Margot Robbie. Yeah. And I think where it differs with Bruce Lee is I think if you're going to show how tough Cliff Booth is and how mm -hmm. much of a badass he truly is, you put him up against someone that the era knows about, and who's tougher than Bruce Lee? If he can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe Bruce Lee, you, you know, it's without having to tell a lot of backstory. We don't have to go show mm -hmm. him war. We know how, what Cliff is through this one moment. So yeah. that would be my flip on those. One thing I did want to ask you, though, and I might answer my own question here. What was your feeling of why Tarantino decided to use actual Sharon Tate footage from The Wrecking Crew? I think it was the pale homage. Yeah. I think it was. Those who don't know her and haven't seen her and only know her through this instance, this is also what she can do. This is, you yeah. know, this is maybe one of those movies that maybe his first impression that he remembers of her, yeah. this Wrecking Crew film. Also, it helps tie in because I guess, you know, obviously Bruce Lee helps the trainer. Yeah. So, like, there's some uh -huh. tie-ins that go throughout the film. He's a genius when it comes to his knowledge of cinema history. But I think it was nice to yeah. see Sharon Tate get another chance. Maybe it was his way of saying, like, you know what? Her last performance is now in this movie 50 years later. Almost like, fuck you, Charlie. You didn't erase her. Here she is. No, I, I think I kind of I, I, I kind of fall the same way. And I think you can excuse it a couple of different ways. And then also you can sort of point to um, that being sort of maybe another breadcrumb to leading to the fact that the movie doesn't end the way we think yeah. it ends. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but but ultimately, I, I, I do think you're right in the sense that it was probably a good way to sort of showcase the real Sharon Tate and highlight that. I mean, it's it's really a beautiful love letter to 
to people that were taken from us. More viewings just get you, you start to really wrap your arms even more and more around the film the more mm-hmm. you watch it, you know, and those people who don't give it enough, like a Jackie Brown, now like when you start watching, when you start really seeing, man, he really is a master filmmaker. He hits so many yeah. notes and they're so rewatchable. The more you yeah. watch them, you know, you get so much more out of them than just being able to quote every fucking scene. Well, and, and it's funny, you talked about how Django couldn't have been made without Tarantino. This movie couldn't have been made because someone wouldn't have made this. They would have made the actual murder of them and it would have been like a horror story or like a real life true crime thing. And we wouldn't have got this other amazing story. But we also wouldn't have gotten four blocks of L.A. transformed 50 years. Tarantino and his pull and his power convinced businesses, multiple businesses, dozens and dozens of businesses to allow their facades to be transformed. So we could get that that shot of Brad Pitt driving Four blocks, which you watch it and you don't appreciate it. And again, on the Blu-ray, there's a pretty good featurette that illustrates what they did. And then also, I think people who recognize the name at the end credits, special effects consultant or whatever his final credit was, John Dykstra of Star Wars fame. There was a lot of work that went into transforming current day Hollywood into the Hollywood of 1969. And I think that's another thing to appreciate about this movie. But again, if it's not Tarantino, you're not getting, you're not getting a four block shutdown where all these businesses say, okay, yeah, sure. Transform our facades. (laughs) Well, a lot of them kept it. A lot of them liked it so much, they kept the facade. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the transformation stayed. So my hope is when I get there for the last one, the trek across for my final <laughs> NECA performance, <laughs> is to see some of these facades and to see which ones stayed and which ones disappeared. Because quite a few of yeah. the companies or the businesses liked it so much, they kept the facade that was put up. Yeah, but again, that speaks to Tarantino's power yes. as a filmmaker. And I mean, he's got a great love for that city as well. And oh, you yeah. know what he's what he's done with the new Beverly there. And he's got a new theater I heard he just bought as well. So he's gonna have yeah. two there. Yeah. But I mean, we could go on and on <laughs> about that. But I mean, it is worth pointing out that, you know, that that's an aspect of this film that probably gets overlooked. Agreed. Yeah, no you CGI effects. Everything's practical for him. Nothing's yeah. green screen, no well, green screen wall painted that they drove by and then they yeah. added in post. It's all Real, he did it all. Well, there's something that John Dykstra did, though. So it's stuff that you can't do practically. Yeah. But your point is, you know, that four block stretch. Yep. There's no, mm-hmm. there's no chicanery going on no. there. That was just we transformed that space, yep. and now you're seeing it. That's another aspect of the film that I love watching. Now, another thing that Tarantino has been great at is not just bringing people back from the dead, so to speak, but also sometimes introducing us to people. And I'm talking about the great young girl who plays Trudy mm-hmm. in The Lancer Show. She mm-hmm. is a fucking spitfire and scene stealer. She sits next to Leonardo DiCaprio and steals that fucking scene. Yeah. Steals that scene. I think emotes the... Well, I mean, DiCaprio's a phenomenal actor, but I think she helps him emote mm-hmm. that whole look at his life as this Bronco guy from this book he's yeah. reading that he's actually him. And yeah. I love the fact that she also is able, like, she has a real contempt for Rick right away, mm-hmm. just the way he spits and everything, and also his inability to say his character's name. I'm pretty sure it's Dave yeah. too. I love <laughs> She just has such contempt for him at first, you know, and then eventually that'll change. I think it's masterfully done in the movie. But again, this is another case of in the book, you get a little bit more of that relationship of yes. of how they work together as actors and not an actor and an actress, as she she points out. Yes. But no, I think that it's a great, great sequence in the movie because 
it really showcases how actors of a certain caliber approach their craft. Yes. And it showcases that it is a craft. Yes. But then we also get that cynical side of Rick where he jokes about or he makes that offhanded comment that she'll get there. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then he catches himself <laughs> for being kind of cruel. Yeah. But then I think he also appreciates... And he also sort of reconnects with what made him want to be an actor to begin with. Yes. And that's what ultimately allows him to deliver the performance that he delivered. Yes. It's yes. working off of that other actor who sort of lit whatever kind of fire yeah. they needed to lit under his butt. Again, there's a lot of unspoken stuff that goes yeah. on in that sequence that I really, really appreciate. And one of the great ones is maybe Dexter had this hand in this. And this is one of the things that the... Relationship between Jim Stacy and Dalton has gone into quite a bit in the book. Yes. And, you know, all the things that are happening. However, what you would not be able to get in the book is the fake great escape moment that we get in this film. That <laughs> yes. is a stroke of fucking genius by QT and DiCaprio's performance yeah, playing yeah. this. Oh, man. So good. I love it. Yeah. I think Tarantino was like, I have to do it. I have to. Well, you know, he's not a CGI person, yeah. but when he uses it, he's not like fucking James Cameron. I talk about him a lot in my other podcasts. I, I shit mm -hmm. him and the Cheeky Bastards a lot, <laughs> but he overuses it. But this use of it was absolutely perfect. And I love it because it's just Rick thinking about what it would have been like, yeah. how he would have performed mm -hmm. in the role instead. It just fits so perfectly and so well done. And it doesn't take you out of the film by any stretch of the imagination because, one, whoever did it, whatever money they spent, they nailed it. Fucking nailed it. There are people listening to this podcast right now that have no idea that that wasn't an extra film scene, that that is actually <laughs> DiCaprio being mm -hmm. put over mm -hmm. the real actor in this movie from the 1960s called The Great Escape. Which, again, mm -hmm. as Tarantino fans, we heard about in the opening monologue of Reservoir Dogs about Charles Bronson digging tunnels in The Great Escape. <laughs> so The Great Escape yeah. is one of the first things we ever hear about as a Tarantino fan in 1992 mm -hmm. from Reservoir Dogs. And here it is in one of his last movies, and we actually get to see his version of it with Rick Dalton playing titular role from The Great Escape. Yeah, and you also mentioned Jim Stacy, and we get the wonderful Timothy Oliphant. Oh, phenomenal. And in it. It's weird because I've always associated Oliphant with... Tarantino because of their connection via Elmore Leonard. Yes. So it was great to see him finally show up, but then also to know that the two of them worked together again on the new Justified sequel, City Primeval, which is coming out. Well, I've heard that he was supposed to work on it, and he ended up not directing, and that was never established oh, why. He was supposed to do the first two episodes, and that did not happen. Probably so. scheduling, I'd imagine. Damn, that's disappointing to hear because... Uh, it's, just, it's very disappointing. Um, but, man, I would love to see... Um, not that he needs the bump, but I yeah. would love to see Oliphant work more with Tarantino because... He would be great if they ever do the Netflix show. Yeah. Even if they can't get to DiCaprio, putting him in the role of Rick Dalton, I would totally go with. I think <laughs> yeah. he'd be fantastic. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's a guy that gets it. Just his overall performance in Justified. Yep. He's a guy that's got all the tools that are needed to deliver a performance in a Tarantino movie. The, the movie within the movies, it's the it's the stuff that Tarantino does. And we talked about the very first episode of Steve Smith and the very first episode of Reservoir Dogs. We talked about how you get sucked into things that aren't real and you mm -hmm. don't notice it. Mr. Orange's commode story. You're mm -hmm. sitting there watching it thinking, holy fuck, how's Mr. Orange going to get out of this and not realizing that there's no dog, there's no cops, he's not in the fucking bathroom. <laughs> but you're sitting there going, yeah. how the fuck? But it's this scene yeah, yeah. in the Lancer episode where, especially when he returns, and we'll talk about his, his ad-lib moment in the trailer, 
Carol in a moment. But when he returns and he does the whole sexy Hamlet as Wanamaker says it, yeah. I get so sucked into that that when that scene ends, I'm like, fuck, that's right. This is, this is not even real. Like, I want to watch this whole show. I want to see this whole episode mm-hmm. that they've shot. I'm so in it. And then it just ends and you're like, fuck, I want to see how this goes because, you know, we get the little first part and he's pretty good and you're still like, well, he's kind of playing a caricature of somebody. And then all of a sudden, like, yeah. he has his stuttering moment and he fucks up and then he goes into the trailer. Then when he comes back and you just like, it's just amazing how DiCaprio was able to do <laughs> the old uh, uh, Tropic Thunder. I'm a dude playing a dude playing another dude. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? Like yeah, he yeah, kind of yeah. doing that whole thing, and I just love that he's able to reach that level, but do it in such expertise. But it's also great acting and storytelling that as you're sitting there in the theater watching this fake thing in a film, you realize none of this is happening. This yeah. is just us seeing a day in the life of him in the set. But I'm so now invested in this fucking Lancer story. Does he ever go see the old man? Does he get the $50,000? <laughs> what does happen? Oh, just yeah. one of my favorite moments of the film is how we just sucked in and we just don't realize it's all fake. That's a great storyteller. Because he could have totally just yeah. watered this down and moved on and didn't have to show any of the scene. But the fact that they actually showed the scenes and how they're filmed from a TV show, that's a real master of the craft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and also, I'm not one of those people that disregard DiCaprio. I think there's plenty of performances prior to this movie that showcase what a great actor he is. Shutter Island, The Departed. I think Inception, he he delivers. Django Unchained. Yeah, The Aviator, Django Unchained. But here, there's multiple things going on. Well, first of all, you have to be a really good actor to deliver a performance where somebody's supposed to be doing good acting. But you also have to be a good actor to showcase an actor underperforming. Yes. It's really, really difficult. And he pulls it off. And to go from stutter to Mm non-stutter. So he stutters when he's not acting, and he came up with that kind of little thing with Tarantino that when he acts he doesn't stutter but when he's not acting he has a bit of a stutter and he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't oversell it all the time but it's there you know it's part of who he is and it's so nuanced that some people don't probably don't even realize that he does stutter now they have to go back and now watch it and realize that when he's actually Rick Dalton and not a character yeah. he stuttered mm-hmm. and then his amazing between scene the ad lib which we talked about earlier mm-hmm. my favorite scene in the film I have quoted this more than anything else the could have just four whiskey sours had that fucking eight like then he takes the Sip and they throw yeah, yeah. every ad lib moment that he did in this moment that Tarantino allowed him to do. That is yeah. in and of itself, he should have won the Oscar for that. Yeah. How does he not win? He wins for the Revenant, yeah. as Sean Wheeler says. He wins for the Revenant for barely speaking and being cold. But in this movie, he goes above and beyond and gets nothing. Like yeah. if Pitt gets it, why did he not get it? I mean, the two of them are interchangeable. Without the other yeah. one, neither is as good. And I don't know. But yeah. he was brilliant in that moment. Yeah. Being able to let that loose. Great editing, too. Yeah, and Tarantino said he's just going to let him fly. And he said, just go ahead. Because he said, we're going to just intersplice it. And he said, Mm -hmm. that's how I want it to be. And again, it's one of those moments where it doesn't affect Mm -hmm. you. You're not upset by it. Because we're just getting, you know, we don't need to see the whole explosion. It's almost like he's giving us the greatest hits of the explosion. And it just fucking works. Mm -hmm. Boom, your fucking brains all over your fucking pool. And I love that he's like looking, breaking the fourth wall, looking at us. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's so, oh, it's just so fucking great. Yeah, yeah. So fucking great. I love Uh it. And that leads to Cliff, some pussy, and the Manson family. With his visit to Spawn Ranch. Now, the ride banter between him and Pussycat mm-hmm. is just, it's really fantastic. And for as big of a piece of shit as Cliff has been kind of alluded to being, he won't stoop to being a pedophile, which is refreshing, especially for Hollywood. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I like that moment yeah, where, yeah. like, Tarantino even is acknowledging, look, is Cliff probably too old for this girl? Yes. He's in Hollywood. It's the 60s. Free love. He wants to know, though, 
what's your age? He's getting, he wants consent. Yeah. He knows she's already given him consent, but he's like, oh, that's great. Yeah. How old are you? And so no matter what, there is yeah. still redeeming qualities of Cliff. He may fuck other things up in his life, but the one thing he's not, it's like a sexual predator. But it's also like a self-preservation thing because he said, you know, they've been trying to get me for years and they're not going to get me over pussy. That whole car ride is is great. Yeah, I mean, it leads to a great sequence in the movie. Which again, we kind of talked about, I feel like people may not feel that dread if you don't know mm-hmm. the story. And obviously, once you read the book, you realize that you're right. The Manson family is the ones who really should be worried. <laughs> the real yeah. threat is pulling up in the vehicle, not <laughs> the people who live outside. But the scene yeah. was meant to have the vibe of, you know, the early moments in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So when they yeah. arrive at Spawn uh-huh. Ranch, you're supposed to have this, like, gloomy ambiance. Yeah, yeah. And you do get it. Like, it's also kind of like almost like a zombie yeah, picture, and, too. And you're kind of like, where is everybody and who are these people? You don't know what's in that back bedroom either. Yes. Like, I mean, or in the other rooms surrounding. You see people pop out. Yeah. You don't know what uh-huh. else is in there. Yeah, there's so mm-hmm. many things being left unsaid, and it's so foreboding. Mm-hmm. Then you get the tete-a-tete between Squeaky and Cliff, which is <laughs> yeah. tense. Especially now we have yeah. some backstory about Cliff's predilection for violence and maybe mm-hmm. even against women, depending. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when you read the book, you realize that, you know, some things, some shit has happened. But once he gets through the door, I love it, he says, this, the screen door is not keep me out. He kind of like, he's like, look, yeah. you can lock your screen door. But that's not stopping me from coming in. I'm coming in. We yeah, do this yeah. with you keeping the screen door or losing the screen door kind of thing. And what I do love mm-hmm. is that when he goes in, Tarantino using the TV show's foreboding music as he walks down the hallway. And even in this moment, mm-hmm. Cliff himself is a little bit worried. And for Cliff to be a little bit worried, I don't know that he's worried for his own safety, but he is a little worried what he's going to find mm-hmm. or what's waiting for him back there. At any point, when you watch this film, did you have maybe a just a little like, are we going to have another gimp moment? Are we going to have another when he gets to the door? Is there going to be like this? Not like gimp is like there's going to be a guy dressing, but like that. Oh, shit. Where did this come from? Kind of moment. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. What did you think might happen? Did you think maybe a, I didn't think Charles Manson was going to pop up or anything like that, but I wasn't sure what was waiting for us at the end of that hallway. You know, I really assumed, I thought, if anything, it might be a dead body, you know, like... Um, or kind of like in the in know, Seven, when you find that guy who's been left there for a year, yeah. like he's literally a dead body. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. But it's so great that we basically get everything that Squeaky says is just parroted back to him by Spawn. Oh, hey, Mr. Eight Years Ago. Which is hilarious. <laughs> it's a great sequence. And Bruce Dern does a tremendous oh, job. He's but amazing. Before, before he died, Bruce uh, yeah, um, Burt Reynolds was, be was supposed to play that role. And unfortunately, he passed away. But I mean, does he play it better Bruce than Dern, Bruce Dern? Because I think I, Bruce Dern is ad-libbing this the whole time. I rewatch it today. Yeah. And even he's starting to smile. He almost makes Brad break everything he says. <laughs> I think it's yeah. out of that whole sequence when they're saying it's a long it's take. A comedy routine. It absolutely is. Yeah, He's like yeah. John Wilkes Booth. Like he is almost intensely <laughs> trying to get Brad to smile and fuck up, and he yeah. does it. And then I just love when he's trying to sit up and Brad's trying to help him up. He's like, "Everyone don't need a stunt man." Like that's where Brad starts to smile, and but it just works beautifully. Yeah. Because it's just oh yeah. god, I just absolutely love Bruce Dern. Is absolutely delightful in this moment. Oh, it's just so fucking good. I mean, that's what you bring a guy like Bruce Dern in for. Oh, you know, it's like it's like bringing in a designated yes. hitter. You know, you're in a game. And you need somebody that you know is going to get on base. And Bruce Dern is one of those guys. He's going to get on base and steal second for you instantly. He's so good. He's clutch. He is clutch. He completely kills it. In the decade that he's been in with the Tarantino verse, his little brief moment as head of the Crookin Farm in Django where he burns the R's on him, that's a tough mm-hmm. moment for that. Like, he's a brief moment. He's phenomenal in The Hateful Eight as General Smithers. Yeah. And then in this mm-hmm. as George Spawn, he's just, 
He's just a fucking chef's yeah, kid. Chef. So fucking good. Yeah. It's one of the funniest moments yeah. in, in the entire film. And then, you yeah. know, we get <laughs> we get Cliff realizing, all right, I made a mistake. I get the fuck out of this this fucking place. He fucks up that hippie. <laughs> but what I love is I love how he's beating the dude's ass and he turns because the girls are crying. He goes, ladies, and then fucking decks him again. <laughs> I fucking love it. It's one of my favorite moments. I don't know if it was in the script or ad lib, but I just love the holding him on the hair. He just turns, ladies, <laughs> fucking hammers. Well, yeah. Well, and that's him also saying to yes. them. This is partially your fault. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know, like this this extra one here, it's completely on you, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> and it's great to see the transfer of power there as well, the arrogance of the dude. And he's completely emasculated oh, in front of yeah. all the women. And then, you know, he's forced to change that tire yep. and he's denied yep. a towel to wipe his face. <laughs> and again, it's a major cliff moment, too, yep. because you see that this is not a situation that's anywhere near, you know, dangerous for yep. him. He's dealt with much, much yeah. worse. And then also um, we get that very brief Austin Butler yeah. um, appearance where I didn't know it was Austin Elvis yep. Butler until I watched it again because Prior to that, he was just some, you know, 20 something yeah. actor. But you know, when I watched for this, I was like, oh my God, it's yeah. Elvis. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now, Clem, for those who don't know, this is Tarantino making a statement why he gets his ass whooped. The real life Clem killed one of the ranch hands on the Spawn Ranch, cut him up into pieces, and buried him on the property. In the late 70s, he finally took them to where his remains were. So, this is Tarantino's mm. way of saying, all right, Clem, yeah. you're getting your ass whooped right now. <laughs> Ladies. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then this day closes out brilliantly with a great uh, Feliciano cover of yeah. California Dreaming. California Dreaming. Jim Stacy on mm-hmm. a motorcycle, a little foreshadowing. Then 1973, he would die on a motorcycle accident, mm-hmm. uh, the real actor. And mm-hmm. then we get the great meme that is Rick pointing and whistling. And his, <laughs> here it comes. His FBI comes on. And yeah. it's when Cliff once again leaves his acid dip cigarette at Rick's house, foreshadowing. And then mm-hmm. I just love how they like they talk shit. I love the little banter about the, the like the behind the scenes stuff. Like, you know, I used the gum. Would you think it was the cool? And and then like Cliff's like, that was a good slide off the hood. Mm-hmm. And then like he's talking about the one guy's like, he was such a fucking asshole. You know, I love that little yeah. You uh-huh. know, it's almost like this little like sewing circle moment that they get to share because they're yeah. in the industry. And then I just watch yeah, so yeah. they're telling you about what's going on. So it's kind of like when Tarantino mm-hmm. does his little podcast. It's kind of like we get to see that angle from these two guys sitting there talking shit about the guys who were in the FBI episode. Which you did say Absolutely. Burt Reynolds that actual episode mm-hmm. he is playing the yeah. character that Burt Reynolds played in the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we get to the foreboding doom of the last 30 minutes of August 9th, 1969, the day that changes Hollywood forever, that launches the 1970s film that I believe is what creates Quentin Tarantino to be the director he is today. This mm-hmm. moment, if it doesn't happen in real life, we may not be, you and I probably aren't talking right now and having this podcast at all. You mm-hmm. probably don't even have a podcast called Conversations Jack Rabbit Slims because he probably <laughs> doesn't make Pulp Fiction. So sadly, the death, the horrific moments that changed Hollywood, if they didn't happen like they don't in this movie, a lot of the stuff is different. A lot of Hollywood is different. Mm -hmm. A lot of America is probably Mm -hmm. different as well. But the interesting thing is in the six months that Rick and Cliff have been in Italy, Rick has taken on a whole new look. He is more hippie than clean cut cowboy. I absolutely love Kurt Russell now being brought back in to narrate. And I think it was smart mm-hmm. that we had him narrate a brief moment in the first part, talking about the uh, yeah. the drunk driving. So that when he comes back in later, we don't feel like... Yeah, what's So this? we start to know who he is. But it's great that he's brought back in. Mm-hmm. Now, of the four films that he makes in Italy, which one would you have wanted to see? Oh, 
Goodness. Let me pull him up. I think the first one is uh, he's there for Nebraska gym. He then does <laughs> this is I this is the one I picked only because I love the title. It's Kill Me Quick Ringo, said the gringo. <laughs> I fucking don't know why I like that song, but it's great. The other one he does with Telly Savas, I think it's called Red Blood Red Skin, based on a oh, real book. Yes. Fucking horrible. But anyways, that's the name of it. Don't don't shoot the messenger. That's what it says in the movie. It's based on a book. And then he does Operacion uh Dynamite, which is his, his uh, movie with uh, Margarete. So, which Cliff gets yeah. to do some car stunts in. I think Kill Me Quick Ringo says the Gringo has that. to. Just the name alone. It feels like yeah. such a Tarantino B-movie spaghetti western. Doesn't it just feel amazing? Yeah, but it also seems like a title that would really exist. Yes. No, it really does. For back in those mm-hmm. days, yes. I mean, Red Blood Red Skin, if that exists, mm-hmm. I'd love this him and Telly. Yeah. Him and Telly Savalas. I just love that yeah, Telly yeah. gets brought into that as well. I love the poster art they did for this. For, for those. They're fantastic. Oh, yeah. And they're in yeah, the book. Absolutely. They're in the, the hardcover. Yeah, uh-huh. Now, when they land, I do love also the callback to Jackie Brown with Rick oh, yeah, the, in the, the airport air, walk. The Very airport cool. Wall, it's yeah. very, it's mm-hmm. not the same. Obviously, mm-hmm. he does a great job of not replicating it completely. But those of us who are Tarantino fans know that it's weird. He's paying homage to a movie that was paying homage to another movie because that's from The Graduate. Yeah. And then he's so yeah. when you're a fan, you start to get sucked into these holes and you go, oh, all right, this now that's what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Now, the end section is brilliantly set up by QT and the use of this voiceover with the time titles. Mm-hmm. However, it does only work for those who know the events, right? So if you don't know, mm-hmm. you may be like, well, okay, why are we talking about what they ended up doing? Because we're going through it basically step by step as if it's in a diary or your date planner of exactly what each character is doing leading up to the eventual murders, which we all sitting in the theater first time think, all right, here it comes. The minute he starts doing that, I'm like, oh, I felt dread. I was like, okay, we're here. Like we've arrived, all this other stuff that we've had mm-hmm. enjoyment of for the last hour and a half we're about to be ruined mm-hmm. but i did love that he puts us on the edge of our seat those of us who were in the know and were anxious by just using kurt russell and not being like narrating thriller or something but it's like he's very matter of fact almost like we're being told like it's like a documentary mm-hmm. on this time but this date this is what happened and i just really enjoyed that moment did it add any tension for you the first time you saw it oh yeah Absolutely. Again, I mean, you can say it starts with this and, you know, with the build up to it, this entire sequence, it shows a, an amazing amount of growth for a filmmaker who was already pretty well grown. Again, I think it really shows Tarantino's amazing ability as a director. Everything hits the, exactly the way it's supposed to. It's just such a well done sequence. And then if you want to break down a sequence within a sequence, the actual living room sequence is really just the absolute best directed sequence of his career. The whole movie builds to this, and it delivers exactly the way it it needed to. And it started with Cliff's and away we go. Which is weird because it's not (laughs) just a callback to the Jackie Gleason's, you know, famous phrase, but it is the match that lights the fuse to the climax of the film. You know, it's just a cool Uh little throwaway line because you're like, we all know he's about to smoke this LSD laced cigarette, you know, but the reality is like, here we go. Hold on to your fucking asses because it's basically Tarantino saying, you've been waiting for it. Get ready. Here we go. (laughs) There's not a single time that I don't love or laugh at Rick's interaction with the three Manson family members when they pull up onto the street for the first time. He's like, take this mechanical asshole, (laughs) get it off my fucking street. And then he looks at him, what the hell are you looking at, you little ginger haired fucker? I 
just fucking yeah, uh-huh. yeah. But then you also get the whole conversation about you know they realize that it's Rick Dalton, yes. and then they the one girl who popped up in the new Scream movie, she sort of justifies what they're going to yes. do, and you know punishing Hollywood for glorifying violence, and which is an interesting thing to say, giving that we're talking about Tarantino, who is known. For, <laughs> it's just such a like meta. You're like, wow, this is a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's cool. It's it's cool seeing you know Rick sort of driving what happens as well. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Without knowing he's doing it, yeah, he yeah. goes fucks off with the margarita in the pool. You know what I mean? Like he misses all of it to almost to the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. Now, believe it or not, Pat and I cover the home invasion scene pretty in depth in the second Bible study for the month. Mm-hmm. However, that being said, clearly you were blown away by where the ultra violence of the scene goes. And then we get to see Brandy as the ultimate in home fucking defense. Now, what is your feeling about the controversy centered around the violence toward women in it? And I have said this leading up to this episode. Most of the ultra violence that Tarantino displays in his films are usually centered or aimed at people he believes deserve this. So, first mm-hmm. instance would really be Inglourious mm-hmm. Bastards. It's a violent film, but most of it isn't like this gratuitous, almost cartoon violence until we get to the night of the premiere. Mm-hmm. Nation's Pride premiere, he blow, I mean, they set the whole fucking <laughs> Nazi party on fire, and he just fucking waylays the face off of Hitler. Right? We go to Django. The scenes where the slaves or black characters are brutalized, are very real, very in your face. But when we blow mm-hmm. up the KKK, or when Django comes back and lights up fucking Candyland twice, more cartoon violence. But those people are getting this extreme violence because those are people he's saying deserve this in history. I feel mm-hmm. the same here. I know that they are females, but these females in real life killed four to five people, stabbed a woman 37 times, and cut her unborn child out of her. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who clutch your pearls at the sight of the one girl, Katie, getting her face Mm -hmm. smashed into many objects in the house, including a stone fireplace mantle. And then the other girl, Sadie, getting set on fire with a blowtorch. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. a flamethrower. She wishes it was a blowtorch. Hold your tears because in reality, they were fucking evil. Evil human beings who deserve this and maybe more. That being said, on my point, how do you feel about all this. Oh no, he like violence towards women. Tarantino hates women. No. He's also making a statement on the fact that he believes this was the end of his childhood and that they ruined his early love of what Hollywood was because of this night. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is really the ultimate sort of stand your ground statement if you will. I mean, they've invaded a home with intent to do harm, even though Cliff is out of his mind on LSD. <laughs> Cliff still has the ability to read situations. And once we get past the moment where Cliff realizes they're real, because we have that really <laughs> funny moment. It's a donut, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you get that moment where Cliff realizes that they're an inherent threat and he's got a lot of tools at his disposal to dispatch them. <laughs> one major and one. He, that's yeah, hidden on the couch also, and don't even sees because of her yeah. her color of her coat blends in with that couch leather. And he's also got, you know, this mean streak within him that allows him to do this. It has nothing to do with their gender at that point. It's solving a problem. And it, it's funny, if you watch Red Letter Media, they did a half in the bag episode on this where Rich kind of makes the argument that these kids are punished for no reason unless you know 
the real story behind it. But I think there's enough justification here with the fact that it's the start of a home invasion to justify everything Cliff does. There was no overt period when I was watching the scene where I said, oh, my God, he's killing he's killing a young girl here or anything like that. It's just, you know, these people came there with the intent to kill. We see they have the intent, intent to kill. Even if, you know, you don't know the history, they have that conversation in the car where they flat out say, we're going to go in and kill all these people. Uh, and Charlie told us to. So, yeah, again, I think it's another, you know, overt, you know, false outrage, clutch your pearls. <laughs> this is wish fulfillment to the nth degree. You know, they just, in this universe, they had the unfortunate timing to arrive when Cliff was there. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to say that I think this is some of Tarantino's most effective use of violence in all of his films. And I think I talk about this sequence uh, on the episode I did with Courtney of uh, Jack Rabbit's Flims, where I talk about how effective it is that once Sadie gets hit in the face with that dog, the can of dog food. She never stopped screaming. Oh God, I, know. I couldn't wait for her to be set on fire. I'll be honest with you. I couldn't, exactly. couldn't handle it anymore. But that adds an element to that sequence that just makes that sequence as powerful as it is. You know, it's hands down. It's probably some of the, again, the most effective violence Tarantino's ever done in, in any of his films. I think it's also his most ultra violent he's ever done. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, uh -huh. everything that happens with Brandy going absolutely, just absolutely, we see what Brandy's capabilities are. Mm -hmm. The book will definitely give you folks who haven't read the book yet a complete backstory on why that's what's going on there. You really learn that maybe, maybe Cliff could have whooped Bruce Lee's ass with his level <laughs> of violence. And then yeah. fucking Rick Dalton brings out the motherfucking yeah. flamethrower <laughs> and lights a motherfucker on yeah. fire. <laughs> Is everyone yeah, okay? Yeah. Those fucking uh -huh. hippies aren't that's for goddamn sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, but. When all is said and done, the fire smolders. I love the fairy tale ending of the film. And that comes mm -hmm. to after, you know, he said goodbye to Cliff and Cliff's headed off to the ER. And it's that moment where we now learn that Sharon is alive. Like, yeah, like yeah. the events mm -hmm. that really happened didn't happen. Sharon's still alive. Mm -hmm. And it's well done over the, the voice. I love when mm -hmm. he does it over the speaker. It's almost like it's a voice calling to us from the fucking beyond. And then yeah, yeah. it's why uh -huh. he doesn't show the fucking title of the film until the end and mm -hmm. let you know that it was a fairy tale, that I know that this is mm -hmm. not work, but if I could have changed the events, this is how I would have hoped that they would have gone. Did mm -hmm. you like, and I'll we'll close this out, this portion of this film, did you like how QT ended this film and forgetting what we learn about Rick's career past this night in the book, what was your initial thought of as to how Rick's career was going to be altered by these new events of August 9th, 1969? As I said at the early parts of this episode, perfect ending. Perfect ending to Tarantino's career as a filmmaker if Hush. he chooses <laughs> Don't you to, this to do that. And you know what? I didn't really think about anything other than the fact that Rick was going to be okay. You know, I don't remember really having any feelings at the end of the movie about what it meant for his career, but that's an excellent, excellent question. Would he have potentially gone down a road where they exploit that, especially in the 70s where, you know, exploitation films really sort of peaked? God, that's a good question, Scott, and, and I hadn't really thought about it. I definitely didn't think about it when I saw the movie, and and I know the, the book fills in some blanks, but um, yeah, what was your, what was your sort of takeaway from what it what impact it had on 
on Rick's career. I remember when he cranes up and it, and then he's meeting Sharon and, and all that's happening. And the only thing I thought was, because he said early on, I'm one pool party away from possibly being in the next Roman Polanski movie. <laughs> I thought, I wonder if somehow this will correlate for him being in a Roman Polanski movie or at least mm-hmm. somehow Sharon Tate getting him into a movie with her. Again, I don't I don't expect him to suddenly become, you know, like the next, you know, he's not becoming the next great, he's not becoming the next Leonardo DiCaprio. How's that? But there was an element yeah. of thinking, Rick's life is and cliff for that matter because if rick's life changes cliff's life changes because cliff and rick mm-hmm. are you know in their world are spitting image for each other and the perfect stuntman combination for them so it is it's a great fairy tale because it's not just a fairy tale about rick's life changing and all them but it's sharon tate and all of hollywood changing in one night and things being maybe maybe better. I don't know. We don't we don't know how the world would have been if those events hadn't happened, especially in America. But they did happen, and we know what we got from it. And I guess out of that horrible tragedy, we got Quentin Tarantino. So I'm mm-hmm. sure the Tate family doesn't give a shit about that. But in the same respect, yeah. that is one of the ripple effects of the loss of, unfortunately, Sharon Tate on that night. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. What was your favorite song from this? Jesus Christ, it feels like 3,000 song fucking soundtrack. Like it is maybe his most epic soundtrack he's got. It's chock full of music. What was your favorite song? Vanilla Fudge, Keep Me Hanging On, hands down, just because it works. Tarantino's got an inarguable ability to do this, to take a song, blend it with a scene, and forever change that song. Again, this is a no wrong answer situation because that that soundtrack is chock full Mm -hmm. of songs. But for me, it's it's Keep Me Hanging On. It it made me go out and uh, buy that first Vanilla Fudge album. I'd say close second is probably the Jose Faciliano uh, version of California Dreaming, just because again mm-hmm. that works so well really with that does. sequence. But then there's some of the great Paul Revere and the Raider songs. What about you, man? I think mine's the Neil Diamond song. Yeah. Okay. Part that was of it on is my because short it list. was also in the trailer, and it mm-hmm. you know like just even in the trailer it hits perfectly. There's just something about that, and maybe also because my parents were Neil Diamond fans, so it's probably like a, a synergetic feeling between that as well. But yeah. Yeah. And even early Bob Seger on there when he's driving home, yeah, yeah. such a great uh-huh. fucking song. So, like you said, there's so many great moments on the soundtrack. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, it's one of his biggest. I don't know if it's his best, but it's up mm-hmm. there. Like, it's fucking chock full of oh, songs. Yeah. Like, it's a, it's like yeah, a compendium yeah. to, the, to the late 60s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, who was your favorite character from this film? And I know we don't got tons of characters, so you're really kind of mm-hmm. picking between, it feels like two guys, but it could also yeah. be Margot. But who was your favorite character from the film? Cliff. The more time that goes by, the more Cliff becomes one of my favorite Tarantino characters overall. He's just such a great character. Such a great performance from Brad Pitt. And that that's my answer. It's Cliff Booth. Did the book have anything to do with that? The book helped, absolutely. Because it fleshes out so many details and gives you uh, so much insight into who Cliff is. And then even like, you know, uh, Cliff as like a film scholar, <laughs> even like uh, just so, so wild. Um, it, it adds a lot of depth. But I think just straight up what's on screen is enough to solidify that choice. Um, but yeah, it's just Cliff's a great yeah. character, man. I, I can't disagree. He, he is a phenomenal character. Now, what was your favorite line or monologue from this film? This almost three-hour epic. Okay, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. Right. And the Marvin Schwartz speech that he gives Rick to convince him to go make films in Italy. I think that whole sequence of dialogue where he talks about what Rick's purpose is on those TV shows is to go on and get your ass kicked to put over the next guy. Masterfully delivered by Pacino and masterfully developed by Tarantino. 
for me, that's that's my answer. It opens the film. Like Pacino, like if you're gonna open a film, you roll with Pacino. And he's mm-hmm. fucking spectacular in it. And then the reactions from Leo, yeah. which is great because he's also in that part of his career to be able to put himself into the moment and be like, what if this could and this could very well be me? You know what I mean? Like this yeah, could be yeah. me instead of being in the aforementioned mm-hmm. position that I'm in. So Pacino is used beautifully in this film. Beautifully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last but not least, your favorite scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That climax with Cliff versus the uh, the Manson clan. Again, I said it's the best sequence Tarantino's ever directed. If we're going for honorable mentions, the whole Spawn Ranch sequence, and then probably Rick Dalton on the set of Lancer. Oh, yeah. So many right yeah. answers, no wrong answers. Now, as we say goodbye to the first season of The Church of Tarantino, your final thoughts on this film and Tarantino as a filmmaker. <laughs> uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a great statement on the importance of filmmakers with very big, powerful voices. And as much as that movie sort of talks about the end of an era in the 60s for Hollywood, I think it also speaks to the end of an era for current day Hollywood. Um, There's parallels there for sure. 30 years from now, people might look back at it and say it's, you know, the, the last hurrah of important director-voiced filmmaking. I think it reestablished for me Tarantino as one of our great directors, and it definitely helped me reconnect with Tarantino as a filmmaker and helped me remember why he's the reason I love film as much as I do. And that's a wrap on our 12th and final worship episode of season one. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Craig Cohn, host of Conversations from Jack Rabbit Slim, the Slycast, and Big Screen Book Club, for joining me again today. I had a fucking blast discussing our love of Tarantino, as well as taking a laugh-filled look back at QT's self-proclaimed magnum opus, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, you can find the link to all of Craig's podcasts and his socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. I would also like to thank all of my Season 1 Worship Service guests, Steve Smith, Petros Patsilovis, Ian Harries, Pat Fournier, Ryan Rebelkin, Sam Aversa, Graham Jones, Devon Taylor, Sean Wheeler, and Craig Cohen. I can't thank them all enough for donating their valuable time to be a part of this show. They're not only guests, but have become very close friends of mine, and I'm very thankful for that more than anything else. Now be sure to join me again in two weeks as Pat Fournier, host of the BNews USA podcast, joins me once again for the first of two Bible studies this month as he sits down with me to dissect and discuss the Rick and Marvin meeting scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now if you're so inclined, please join me again next week to check out our very special Jackie Brown 25th anniversary episode. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.